episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oral Recovery. They are located in sunny Southern California. They were created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and the other Bob, with their mission, helping drug addicts and alcoholics by treating them primarily using compassion and connection rather than control. Their team has decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental illness, including SMI, They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is always preferable when kicking heroin or crack or alcohol or really anything. You want a nice, comfy detox. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, starting with sound bath meditation, equine therapy, yoga, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. There's so much good stuff going on at Oro. Everyone we know that has gone has only said good things. So if you're fucked and you're looking to get some help and you don't mind going to sunny Southern California, I totally suggest checking out Oro. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Sober Buddy. I am a proud member of the Sober Buddy team and I am a member of the Sober Buddy community. And you're like, Dave, what's Sober Buddy? Sober Buddy is an app. It helps people maintain and become sober. It is a platform, kind of like Facebook, all around recovery and support and sobriety and alcoholism and addiction. It is also a community of people who are on the platform, who attend weekly Zooms. I think they have 12 Zooms. I should say we have 12 Zooms because I host the Wednesday morning Zoom. And every week I am dumbfounded at how inspiring, fun, and productive our Zoom is. So if you're looking for another tool in your recovery toolbox, you want to give the 30-day free trial a spin, or you're ready to put down 
12 bucks a month. It will be a well-spent $12 that I promise you. Check them out at the App Store or the Google Play Store or at YourSoberBuddy.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the good people at The Phoenix. The Phoenix is an incredible nonprofit foundation that helps alcoholics and drug addicts in recovery to have fun, which is something that we at Dopey endorse. They run hikes. They run CrossFit. They run pickleball leagues. All they want from you is two days of clean and sober time. Check them out at thephoenix.org slash dopey. They will be at DopeyCon, so look for the good people at the Phoenix. They also have music and art events coming soon. It is an amazing free sober resource, www.thephoenix.org slash dopey. All right, just before we get into the show, I want to remind you that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Evolution Accounting and Consulting. They are a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business needs you have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. And perhaps, more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com. Use DOPEY and get special discounts. All right, enough with the ads. Here's the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. Uh, I'm at my dad's house. I'm very excited. This week is DopeyCon. I guess it might have already happened. DopeyCon is this coming Saturday, which might be last Saturday, or if you're listening many weeks from now, it was Saturday weeks ago, or years from now, it was Saturday years ago. But either way, for me, it's this Saturday. I'm ridiculous. Ridiculously excited. It's been a shit ton of work, and it's so exciting to see all the dopes in the community together. It's going to be weird. It's going to be raucous and weird, and next week, God willing, as long as nothing goes wrong, you will hear DopeyCon. This week, though, we have a serious, old-school, down-and-dirty installment of Dopey. We have a local product named Tommy Two Wolves, a.k.a. Dutch, comes in and brings the fucking old-school, serious, debauched dopey. So, bear, you know, get ready, because shit is, is serious business. I want to read a couple things, and then let's get to uh, Tommy Two Wolves, a.k.a. Dutch. I got this note on Instagram from this woman named Tendani, and she says, Hey, Dave, hope you're well. Really love the podcast. I'm from South Africa, and it's funny how recovery is just the most universal thing. I got 30 days yesterday after a four-month relapse that ended a three-and-a-half-year stint. So, so grateful for recovery, even more so this time around. 
You speak of dopey zooms on the show quite often, but I can't seem to find any links on the website. Would you mind please directing me? P.S. If you're keen on an international guest anytime, I'm in. I'm writing a memoir with a major publisher called Black, Posh, and Wasted, so I assure you that I have some things to say. Uh, thank you, Tendani. I sent. I think I sent you the link to Dopey Zoom, and I don't think you sent me a dopey voicemail, which is what I really wanted. Send a dopey voicemail. And if you want to go to Dopey Zoom, it's posted uh, on Instagram. They have like 25 a week. Or join the Dopey Nation on Facebook. All of the Dopey Zoom shit is right there. I'm going to read another one. Also, big shout out to Dopey Reddit. Dopey Reddit is really... Doing a lot, a lot of dopey, a lot of a lot of coverage on the show, a lot of recounting stuff on the show. I heard Selby has moved to Dopey Reddit and is now a big contributor. He's a big help to Cormac, so big shout out to Selby. Always big shout out to Selby. <laughs> Selby's service doing Selby out there. All right, here we go. I'm going to read another one. Hey, Dave, I have been meaning to write for a while, and you just said you were short on emails and voicemails, so I took it as a sign that it's time. First off, let me say I'm so sorry about the loss of Todd and Chris and all the others along the way. I have listened to Dopey since the This American Life episode. Although I am not in recovery, I find the vulnerability that you and your guests have to be a refreshing change from so much media filled with people afraid to admit their worst fears or hard truths. Having spent a lot of my teen years, early 20s, around a lot of drugs and drug users, first as a fish fan, and then as a late 90s Toronto raver, I feel compelled to try to understand addiction. Maybe it's like survivor's guilt. Like how did me and my friends experiment with so many substances and yet get out of the scene pretty unscathed? I still haven't figured it out, but I feel like there is a very thin line between the two paths. After all, at one point, we, are all just, we all just love doing dumb shit. One thing your podcast has done for me is make me feel less shame about the crazy stories we used to reserve only for each other. My husband and I and a lot of my current friends and colleagues did not have the same drug experiences. I'm sorry, my husband and a lot of my current friends and colleagues did not have the same drug experience that I, that I did. And I was always self-conscious about how they might judge me if they heard my old friends and I laughing at stories of bad choices and near misses. But Dopey has made me realize that experiences are just experiences and they all join up to create who we are. So I should let go of the shame and own where I used to be and how I got to where I am. So after all that reflection, here's a story. Way back in my youth, one night, my roommates and I hosted an all-night party at our house. And at the time, I had sworn off all hallucinogens after a few less than great trips. But I loved playing the hostess and had spent the night drinking and making the rounds, making sure all of our guests were doing okay and having fun. In the kitchen, I came upon some people using a coffee grinder to grind mushrooms into powder to make mushroom tea. Like a good host, I found them some tea bags and sat down with them to empty the regular tea and then refill the bags with the mushroom dust. The only problem was that as I was helping them, I was chatting away and not paying attention to the fact that I was licking mushroom dust off my fingers at regular intervals. Leaving the hygiene issue with this aside... I had unknowingly consumed a massive amount of mushrooms. I like this story. It was only when my boyfriend came over and told me that he had just watched me eat about a quarter of mushrooms that I realized what I had done. I went upstairs to try to chill out, 
but in my dark bedroom, it became obvious that I now saw the world only in a black and neon grid, like when Homer leaves the cartoon world for the real world. And I was convinced that I would be in the visual state for the rest of my life. To make matters worse, i.e. my anxiety worse, my one roommate had an early morning shift and I could hear her talking outside the door saying she was scared to leave me in charge of the house. Mentally agreeing that I did not want to be in charge in my current state, I jumped out of bed and announced to the whole house that everyone had to leave immediately. I ushered every last guest out of the door with no explanation and asked a friend to take me to their house and take care of me till I stopped tripping. I spent the day under a quilt watching the three original Star Wars movies, reciting every single line as, as the characters said them. A latent skill I didn't even know I had and have never had since. Speaking of mushrooms, although drugs have not been a part of my life for over 20 years, I totally relate with your fascination of psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. For what it's worth, I both agree that it sounds amazing and there's too much to risk. Or maybe that's just my anxiety talking. Another reason I can relate. Anyway, take it easy, be well, and keep going with this community you have created. You are fostering empathy. Uh, you are fostering empathy at a time when we all need it. All the best and toodles for Chris. And she doesn't want me to say her name. All right. Oh, and then she says, I realize that you now probably were short on emails for the podcast, but now I'm having second thoughts. Don't use my name. P.S. As a fellow parent of a preteen, I would love to hear you talk about how you will talk to your kids about drug use. Um, I love that story. I was obsessed with mushroom tea when I was young. Uh, we would, we, there was a moment in time where uh, we had a ton of mushrooms, me and my friends, like we were selling mushrooms. And so I made a bunch of tea and we would trip fairly often, but then I kind of got burnt out on tripping and I left a giant Tupperware thing of mushroom tea in my freezer and I never took it out. So when I got taken to detox, eventually somebody, maybe my dad, maybe like the people who work in our building, emptied the freezer and that mushroom tea was thrown away. I, I talked to my older daughter about drugs already, just telling her, I mean, I guess what I say is she needs to be careful. There's going to be more talk moving forward. More parenting coming soon on Dopey. I, I, she knows what I did. And it seems to me like they are not drinking and smoking weed yet. So the talk is forthcoming. Look for more parenting coming soon. And who is excited about Dopeycon besides me? Let's hope the church doesn't burn down. We're doing this candle lighting, and my dad is totally afraid. Uh, we're going to do a candle lighting, and my dad is like, are you sure everybody needs to light a candle? You know, what if... What if the smoke detector goes off? But he's really saying is, what if you fucking idiot drug addicts burn down the church? That's what's really going on. I'm like, Dad. And then, and then I get nervous, and I call the church, and I say, is it okay if we do a candle lighting? And they said, of course. So assuming we didn't burn down the church or burn ourselves up in the church, assuming all that, you'll, you'll hear it all next week. And I want to say, before we get to Dutch— that this week's episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp. Oftentimes in my life, I am not certain of what to do. I often overthink things. I sometimes underthink things. I often struggle with the consequences of my 
actions and reactions. And therapy is an amazing tool to sort out analyzing my life and helps me get on the right path. Because sometimes in life we're faced with really hard choices and the right path isn't always clear. Sometimes if you're dealing with career or relationships, therapy can help you figure out the right direction to go. I have benefited from therapy in the past and I want to hear you guys benefit in the future. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I totally suggest giving BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime you want for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map so you don't have to bug out overthinking stuff. Use BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast. Don't be a sucker. Get therapy with better help. And now it's fucking dopey, dopey shit. Tommy Two Wolves, aka Dutch, on dopey. All right. So I'm in the kitchen at my dad's house with Tommy Two Wolves, a.k.a. Dutch. How do you get the name, first of all? Uh, it was when I was a kid. Um, Hold the mic closer, please. It was when I was a kid. Yes, sir. <laughs> it was when I was a kid. I'm actually Thomas Edward Welch III. Oh, nice. And there's a ton of Tommies in my family. you know. And I started running with these punk rock kids when I was like 10 or 11. Here, you wear the headphones so you could hear how far you're, you should talk. Oh, perfect. Right? Does yeah. That sound nice? Now I can hear myself. Yes. Ugh. Hey, you um, sound good. <laughs> you got a good voice. Thank you. So I started running with all these punk rock kids. Um, home life was fucking terrible. You know, it was like a war zone. And um, I uh, and there was a couple Tommies in the crew. There was uh, Little Tommy. There was Big Tommy. And then there was me. Was Little Tommy actually big and Big Tommy actually little? Or were they no, actually Little little? Tommy was actually okay, little. Okay, good. You know? Yes. And uh, my buddy Bart, the white, these dudes. I just Wait, looked. where'd you grow up? I grew up in, uh, this was in Phoenix. I'm from New York. My father relocated to Phoenix and my mother did. And I spent some of my formidable years in Phoenix, you know? With this crew. With the yeah. two Tommy and, and Dwight crew. Yeah, Bart Young, Dwight, Bart. all these people. Yeah, Bart was kind of the leader. Okay. You know? Um, so these kids fucking paid attention to me and were interested and invested in me. And no one had ever been like that for me in my life. You know, and that's when I, like, kind of fell in love with punk rock and, like, turned my life over to it. You know, all of a sudden I had unity. I had these people who were all weirdos and outcasts. But there were too many Tommies. <laughs> so I had a little mohawk. We were all runaways. And um, they were like, we got to give you a nickname, you know. And I'm like, all right. And then Dwight came up with Dutch. How did you get it? All right. I used to tell people this lie. Okay. Right. That, you know, either my uncle gave it to me or I was related to this Dutch Schultz gangster or some yeah, shit like yeah, that. Yeah. He had a hairless chihuahua with a mohawk <laughs> named Dutch. <laughs> and I had the same kind of mohawk, you know. 
Dutch um, is a good nickname, though. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a strong it, name. It, it stuck with me, you know, Jesus. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's how I got that one. And the Tommy Two Wolves is that like you got to feed the good wolf or the bad wolf kind of thing? Absolutely. I went through a crazy situation a few years back where it basically broke me. Um, and uh, I was talking to this woman that I know who's extremely intuitive, you know. And we had to go through this thing, and there was wolves involved and stuff like that. And there were two of them, and I had to get one of my wolves back. What was the thing? How are there? What was the thing with wolves involved? I don't know. Like they were my fucking animals. Like you your know, spirit in the spiritual animal. Okay. Realm, she took you, know? you on some kind of yeah, like she regressive took me on a thing. I had to go down this dark fucking tunnel, and it was crazy because I saw the whole thing in my mind. And I didn't even know this person. I had three different like psychics or whatever the fuck they were get a hold of me and tell me that the person that I was with had a demon attached to her and was going to fucking kill me. And they were correct. Wow. You know, it, 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 it was like one of the most crazy things ever. Um, and then I started talking with this woman and she was a native woman from Arizona, actually, which was odd. I was in Austin, Texas at the time. And she took me on this thing. And this person that I was with, she was, you know, narcissistic fucking malignant you know what i mean and I, I just didn't realize you know i didn't know what was going on i never been every dude gets got by a chick once in their life if not more than once yeah this was mine this is where i got got i mean i thought i got got before but i never got got i got broke the fuck off you know so um yeah she gets a hold of me i don't know she takes me on this thing we're just talking over the phone and i could i could i could visualize the entire thing i'm walking through this dark greasy you know nasty tunnel i get to the end and she was like you gave one of your wolves to her and you need to get it back you know and i get to the end of the tunnel and there's this little girl and it, she's blind. it's her but as a child it's the malignant one or the spiritual yeah, no 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 it's, okay. it's 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 the malignant one as a fucking child you know and just wounded broke hurt you know bad things happen to this person and She's holding one of my wolves, you know, and it was like the most heartbreaking thing because I wanted her to be better. You know, I really, really cared for this person, even if she didn't have the ability to care for me. You know, it was real for me, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I had to take it back. And then, uh, I don't know, I talked to some Indian, but she couldn't listen to it and like you know, this other stuff. But shortly after that, I was able to get out of that entire situation. Um but uh so yeah that's where the tommy two wolves so then from. after that you were like fuck it i have my my two wolves so i'm gonna call myself tommy two wolves and that's your instagram well, thing i just always kind of like the thing with the two wolves man when i meditate i think about them because they're like my protectors and stuff so we never talk about that kind of thing and and the, the idea is that it's an old an ancient saying that we always that we have two wolves inside of us mm -hmm. and we need to either feed we what we if we feed the good wolf we yeah. can be better, and if we feed the bad wolf, like lust, envy, hatred, drugs, which whatever, one wins? Which yeah. wolf gets the one we fed feed the most? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, and even when I was doing uh, EMDR therapy uh, for for, end up getting diagnosed with like the trauma of a Vietnam veteran. You know, all the you know childhood, and then all the years out there on the fucking streets, man, shooting dope and shit. So uh, when they would take me through the EMDR. This woman actually gave me two wolves. And I'm like, wow, that's ironic. You know what I mean? And Gave you two wolves how? 
uh, as like protectors. Like like as a visualization kind yeah. of thing? Yeah, well, you got to understand EMDR, man. You're activating both sides of the brain. Tell, break it, what it, what it. How does it work? Well, um, <clears throat> we've talked about it before, but I don't think I really understand it. Okay, so a couple years ago, you know, I'm fucking stark raving sober, and I end up relapsing, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, my friends over at Lambs, throw this kind of intervention on me. What's and, Lambs? Uh, it's just like artists, compound spots, streetwear, and, you know, artists. It's here? And books and records. Yeah, it's on Orchard Street. Nice. Um, shout out to Lambs. Uh, so <clears throat> they all got together, man, and like kind of do an intervention. No one had ever done something like that for me. You know, I was like totally moved. They were looking out. Yeah. You know, all my years out there, man, my family, like, no one ever done anything like that for me. It cared about me enough to do that, you know? And so I was going to do whatever it took. I ended up calling my friend Jason in Texas. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, man, but I got to do something. There's something wrong with me, you know? And that was the thing in sobriety. I had almost 15 years before that. And then when I got with the girl, you know, the took my wolves, I, I relapsed with her. You know, um, wasn't her fault, completely mine. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, and then it was like a couple years of trying to get that sobriety back. I was willing, but I kept living off of this old, uh, my, uh, living off of my old experiences, you know. And what we know about sobriety, man, is it's what's your current experience. I can't live off the food I ate yesterday. There's so much to there's so much to go go into. Yeah, you were about to say to EMDR. EMDR. Yeah, that's why I'm getting to that. All right. So, anyways, um, thank you. Yeah, I get I get off topic. I'm, I'm going there, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, they throw this intervention. I call my friend Jason because you know I got this perfect life, man. I'm with my girl. She is amazing, Hannah, and um. We go to Coney Island all day long, you know, and then we get back and I'm like having the best day ever. My life is great. And I'm like, I'm going to go to the store and get some cigarettes, you know, and like in the big book, it says it suddenly occurred. I saw these dolphins across the street. I'm like, I'm just going to get a bag and just do a sniff. How and much time? Did it you was have? like this mental blank spot. At that time, I had a year. OK. Right. Um, and it just popped up in your head. Dude. Yeah. And it, 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 there wasn't even a thought about it beforehand. Did like, you it know wasn't like guys? I was obsessing or craving. No, but man, you step out my fuck. I live on Allen and Broom, dude. Like, you step out of my apartment, you trip over a rig, fucking, you know, how much have to move a junkie out of the way. But how much heroin is on Allen and Broom these days? Oh, tons, dude. That whole median is the new Needle Park right there. Bro. Right, right. You but, know what but, I mean? But it, that was post-COVID, though, right? Before, I no, mean, like, this is I right fucking now. This is like uh No, what I mean is, ago. what I mean is, I lived on Grand Street and East Broadway for five or six years, uh, maybe seven years, actually, in the beginning of, uh, I don't know, recently, from maybe 2008 to 2016, 2015, yeah. right? And I couldn't, I didn't see dope anywhere except Avenue D. Like, I had to call people, I had to get stuff, I didn't find anything. Yeah. You're saying that there was heroin right there. there. Yeah, it's all over the lower side. Maybe I just have that, I, I do have that sixth sense where well, I could spot a you also have dope to, you all, Well, I can spot a dope fiend, too, but... Uh, for some reason, I, I had decided that the gentrification of Lower East Side had removed uh, dealers. From, no way. It didn't. No, I was naive. Bro. No. 
Yeah, you go down to like Clinton and, and Rivington and it's fucking everywhere. So anyways, let me get to the EMDR. I, I apologize. So I feel so stupid. I'm I'm like calling people. <laughs> I'm going to Avenue D. Dude, just walk up to the dude panhandling in front of the uh, bodega. Man. I didn't want to deal with that <laughs> shit, though. You know what I mean? Keep going. Keep going. So, um, you know, I get a hold of my friend. Oh, yeah. So I end up getting high, man. And, you know, of course I get busted, you know. And, By your girlfriend. Yeah. And I couldn't understand why I did it. You know, um, I mean, I, I know from from being an alcoholic that I've lost the power of choice of whether I drink or not. And that never comes back. You know, if I'm not staying spiritually fit, that shit will come back and it, it'll come back in some, you know, crazy way. A woman, a this, a that. It'll just sh- it, it'll show up. The opportunity will present itself. So, um, you know, she is very much involved with me and wants to support and help so i get a hold of my friend jason and i'm just talking to him man he's kind of like my mentor he lives in texas he's like all right man this what's going on he calls me back a half hour later and he's like pack your bags i got you a plane ticket you're flying to austin tomorrow and i'm like okay you know at that point i was willing to do anything you know so what he ended up doing was taking me to this place crestone you know recovery and it's not a rehab it's a place where you go because a lot of people in sobriety, you know, end up committing suicide at nine or ten years. So it's like a it's like a maintenance Hold kind on. of spot. No, 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 no. Let, let me let me get there. So there's a big problem with that where people end up offering themselves. They know what the dope has to offer. They know what alcohol has to offer. Fuck that. What's my only other option? Suicide, you know, or sobriety. Well, yeah, but if if you're battling with that, if you're not going to get high, if you're not going to stay sober. Suicide is a viable option, and it happens a lot in the rooms. Um, it happened to uh, one of my all-time mentors, Mark Houston, um, and it ended up being behind trauma. So they're looking at this trauma thing in, in, in addicts. So this place was set up to give you psych evaluations, detox you, all of that, and then connect you with the help that you need when you get out. It's only like a two-week stay, enough to evaluate you, get everything out of your system, and then you know, hook you up with like, you know, the right therapist, the right place to go. So and it's like um, serious co-occurring. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a new stuff. thing, man. Yeah. And it was really amazing. And the guy who owns it, actually, I didn't know until we got there was my old sponsor, Greg Roth. So anyways, um, I'm in there and I get I get I start getting PTSD testing. Right. And on the uh, childhood testing, the ACEs. That's what it's called. I got a 90. Right. Right. On the adult pH 5 test, I got a 69. And this daughter look. I mean, this doctor looks at me. She's like, you have the trauma of a Vietnam veteran. I'm like, fuck. You know, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was that bad. You know, she's like, you have never known peace or calmness. Like, it just does not exist for you. And I knew that it was like, if I don't get help for this, like, I don't have a chance at life at all. I'm going to keep doing what's going on, right? So I get back to New York, and they're trying to hook me up with these PTSD therapists, and five, the first five turned me down. They were like, you know, this is, this is you know, I, I don't want to take this on because I, I don't know if I can handle this. You know, it's too much. And, you know, my girlfriend's getting pissed, and I'm like, no, nah, that's cool. I don't want no one rooting around up in my head if they can't handle it. So I end up, you know, finding this one therapist who took me on, and it was fucking life-changing. You know what I mean? 
Um, and I think the part that works about that is is you got to be ready for it. So what is EMDR though? Like, what do they do? Uh, EMDR, what they do is they bypass the trauma, right? Because the talking about it, there's too much. And I had complex PTSD, right? It's a whole lifetime. So there's so many different situations that I got traumatized in. Well, we need to hear about all of them. Okay, the that's yeah, what yeah. we're doing. I'll that's what we're going to start at the beginning <laughs> in a second. <laughs> So EMDR, what it does is you can only activate one side of your brain at a time. And the trauma lives in your body. Right. And it remembers everything like a fucking elephant. You know what I mean? Every single detail of everything. So when something sets it off, it only sends a bit of information to the right side of your brain telling you you're not safe. Right. Right. This is not good. We need this. This is not familiar, you know. And it literally feels like you're in a life or death situation and you're just sitting there watching TV, you know. So you mm. get caught in between fight and flight or in fight or flight. So what this does is they give you two buzzes in your hands and they got these lights and they buzz simultaneously. Boom, 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 boom. It activates both sides of the brain and it opens up this channel through the trauma to, you know, to come from your body. And then you can visualize and see the whole thing instead of just the good or the bad. You can see the good and the bad at the same it's time. It's doing both sides. So what that does is you know, you talk through with the therapy, you get to the root cause of the problem, you know, and you've got this avatar in you who still believes it exists. The trauma. Yeah. That version of you that took all the fucking bullets, took all the hits, is, is still, still bleeding, wounded. is inside of you. So it was the craziest thing ever, man. Like I'm holding these buzzers and then like I would have to coats out and talk out this version of me. And it would be me at that time looking fucking like I just crawled out of a volcano or the battlefield, you know? And I got to let this part of me know that we're not there anymore. We're living in New York City. It's 2023. Right. You know, you're not Things in any okay. danger. Yeah. And then once they gained the trust, that's where the wolves came in and that kind of stuff is like, pass the wolves off to this dude. And he's like, okay. And I could say, yo, you can either come live with me on the Lower East Side or you can go, you know? And... You know, right. every time this thing just faded away into light. So you're like making an offer to your yeah. past self. And like what, you could either heal or, yeah. or you could go. Yeah. So what that does is it rewires the neural pathways because that's where the trauma grows. And then, of course, you got to do work and change behaviors and stuff like that. But it was crazy. It was like it felt freeing a little bit, but kind of strange. But then like. Six months later, years later, I had no emotional attachment to those to those traumatic situations. So it really works. It really works. Man. That's awesome. Yeah. And 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 let's just back up for a second. Uh, this is Dutch Tommy Two Wolves. He was referred to us by the great Bobby Duke. So shout out to Bobby Dukes. Bobby. He said, "If you want somebody up, with really fucked up stories, go to Dutch." <laughs> and and then like I Google you, and all this tattoo stuff comes up, and and. Dutch is covered with tattoos uh, on his face, on his hands, on his neck. First tattoo you ever got was a dead Kennedy tattoo on your arm with a fucking razor, razor blade, blade and, and ink. ink. Had you gotten high at that point? And you were like 11, oh, absolutely. 12? When's absolutely. the first time you got high? Okay, the first time also, I got high. Also, hold on. Dutch also runs pianos on Ludlow Street. So we I are, used to. I just left there a couple months ago. All right, but he's yeah. a Lower East Side mm -hmm. uh, mainstay, and, and I'm excited. This is going to be good. The, yeah. the, the fucking, I can tell. It's going to yeah. be good. So... First time you get high. So go from the beginning. Uh, yeah, okay. but I'm going to annoy you. So That's just fine. be loving uh -huh, and tolerant man. of me annoying you, please. <laughs> 
I got a lot of practice with that. Good. Um, dude, drugs and alcohol were always a part of my life. My parents were addicts, you know. How um, bad were your parents? My mom was really bad. What was her thing? Uh, opiates and benzos, you know. I mean, I, 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 you know, as early as seven, I'm calling EMS because I'm by myself and my mother's OD. Here or in Arizona? This was here and in Arizona. Oh, man. Um, and, uh, you know, there was always people doing coke or drinking. It was the 70s and, you know, early 80s. It was just like that. So I always figured at some point I was going to graduate to this. These things were okay. But kids couldn't do it. But and I had such a lack of, of, of respect and, 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 and such a degree of humiliation as a child. It was like I thought it would you would be respected and be one of them, you know, when you if start you, doing yeah, this. right, right. Yeah. So my first experience with drugs, um, my dad and my mom are split up, you know. It's kind of funny, I'm, I, you know, I, I have to move in with my dad because my mom's too fucked up, right? So we would get ping pong back and forth, you know. And um, I move in with him, he, he's with his buddy Larry, they live together, a total fucking biker party house, right? And I remember the first day of school, I'm walking back with this kid and he points at, the, at, at, at this house and he's like, yo man, my brother's over there all the time, they go crazy, and I'm like, yeah, that's my, that's my dad's <laughs> house, you know? <laughs> So one day I saw my mom um, buying pills off of Larry, you know, and she's doing, I'm looking through the door and I see her doing it. And then, uh, you know, I know where the pills are. So I go in there and I fucking swipe them and they got names like yellow jackets and Christmas trees. This was like the early eighties, late seventies or something. And, um, you know, this is back when kids roamed the streets. You weren't inside playing video games. There were no video games. You weren't. It was like there was there was us little fucking street rat kids, and then there was the middle school kids, you know, and the fucking stoner kids that were in the kiss, and they were right. the shit. So I come out with these pills, man, and I'm passing them out to these older kids, man. And you just stole like, your mom's pills. No, I stole Larry's pills. Okay. My mom was just buying drugs. <laughs> so, um, and then uh, I'm like, I, I, take, I take some. You know, I take I take a bunch of different ones. I don't even know what the fuck they are. I didn't realize they took a half hour to kick in. So you, you know, keep taking them. so yeah, I, I took a bunch. Then I was like, got this idea. I'm like, I'm gonna go shine shoes. I had the shoe shine box and my bike, and <laughs> I walked down to this busy avenue. And I'm like, I'm gonna shine shoes and make some money. And uh, I start feeling really tired. How old were you? I was eight. That's insane. Yeah, I start feeling really tired, and um. I remember I just ditched the shoe shine box and I'm walking back and at one point I dropped the bike and I laid on the concrete cuz it's barbiturates, right? Yeah, yeah, it was barbiturates. I lay on the concrete because it was cool, you know? And then something means just like get home. <laughs> so I, I I got home and I remember when I got into the front door, I was already turning blue and I was bouncing off the off the walls to get to my bedroom. And um you know, my sister tells me that she was sitting there in my dad's fucked up girlfriend uh she was like oh, i wish i was on what he's on you know next thing i know i come to and they're all standing over top of me holding these bottles of pills going which ones did you take you know and then they throw me in a cold shower and i'm just like ah, you know <laughs> anything but go to the fucking hospital they would have gotten in trouble you right. know um and uh people did shit back then i guess you know so yeah i end up coming off that i'm in deep shit 
you know, whatever. Um, couldn't wait to do it again, you know. It's the same thing with drinking. The first time I ever got drunk, and this is really what got me. It was, it was like, sorry about that. It's okay. So you started so young, you know. Yeah. It's like it's like it must be hard it was to like even a make rite sense of passage, of it. right? You know, it but was just, eight is not like seventeen. No, eight is like fucking no. eight. No, not at all. So it was just what people did back then. You know what I mean? Um, and if you were cool, you know. Well, how many other eight-year-olds were taking pills with you? None of them. You know, but I had other friends who were stealing weed and stuff like that. I mean, everybody. And I'm sure you were there. like, the, were you like the little kid in the crew of 12 year olds or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was a little dude, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, I go on like that. And then, you know, at, at this point, I'm fucking, I, I'm stealing shit. I stole a motorcycle when I was nine and got arrested for Grand Theft Auto. I couldn't even stand on the fucking thing. I had to have my friend start it, and then I jumped on it, and it took off, ran it through an intersection, <laughs> and a light, but up into this park and crashed it, and cops are there next thing you know, and I'm, my dad had to come pick me up from jail, you know. So then that's when I started making my first trips to the psych hospital. Nine. Yeah, you know. Uh, I Did was, they diagnose I was fucking you? with fire. Oh, they diagnosed me with all kinds of shit that I don't have. I just came from a very extreme environment that no child should be in. And I was dealing with it the best way I could, you know. Emulating was, your parents. It was, well, that and just acting out, man. Like, you know, um, they diagnosed me with fucking ADHD. One doctor said I'm emotionally handicapped. I never even fucking heard of that before. No. And, but I would just sit there and lie to the doctors when they would ask me questions. It was a game to me. You know, so of course they can't get no real diagnosis from me, you know. And the thing was, I was just a troubled little kid, you know. So, um, you know, down the way, the first time I drank, though, um, my dad would always give me sips off of beers, you know, like, go give me a beer, would give me sips off of them and stuff like that. But I remember it was like 1984 or 85, and it was New Year's Eve, right? And my uncle had this spot out in the middle of this field, this house, you know. They all had motorcycles, a bunch of bikers. They would have this big pig roast every year, you know. And, um, you know, usually if you were there and you were one of the kids, like, they'd make us fist fight each other and shit, you know. So I'm like, I'm going to the all-night skating rink, you know, because people roller skated back then. To avoid being in the fist fight at the bike. Well, just to avoid the whole fucking thing, you know what I mean? And plus, my parents wanted to get us out the way, you know. And, um... So I end up at the all-night skate rink, fucking ends at 6 a.m. Nobody picks me up. So I just, I walk back over there. It's like a couple miles, right? I get there. There's no adults. There's all my cousins and fucking other kids. It was like fucking Lord of the Flies, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're making fucking all these mixed drinks, you know, being little chemists and stuff. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Taking sips. There was a half gallon of fucking Jim Beam. And, you know, I'll do anything to fit in and 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 and, and be like man to, to whatever fucking extreme at this age you know and they're like drink it tommy so i take it and i just start chugging and it's like a big gulp man like i'm just taking it down you know that first drink of alcohol you can just chug it because you I'm don't just, know i'm just yeah. watching it bubble and i drank almost the whole half fucking g you know immediately start puking and the whole time they're going tommy tommy you know what i mean and then 
I fucking start puking. I'm sick as fuck, you know. But this real pretty girl is taking care of me. And she's showing me attention. And she puts this, you know, washcloth on my head. And she's calling me baby. And I'm like, oh, this is fucking great. Finally, you know, somebody's taking care of me. Yeah, my fucking dad shows up. <laughs> he pissed as fuck, you know. And uh, he's trying to make me rake the yard. I'm like, ah. He's like, just go to bed, you know. Um, so... A normal person having those two experiences, which would be a fucking overdose on pills and then basically an overdose on alcohol where there was no enjoyment. There may have been a brief moment where it was like that, that relief I felt. You know what right, I mean? Right. Before everything Would never else touch happened. it again. I mean, I know people like that now. They're like, nah, first time I drank, I got really sick. I don't, I don't fuck with alcohol. You know, um... First I time I drank, wait. I got really, really sick, and I couldn't drink. But I, as soon as I found a drug that made me feel good, I was in. Yeah. Know? Yeah, so I remember it was like maybe a year later. Me and my dad went on a motorcycle ride, and uh, we're riding, and I saw this beer sign. And I wasn't thirsty, but it was that thirst. You know what I mean? And I had that in me. That's the first time I ever have a recollection of the phenomenon of craving and the, and the mental obsession. You know, I was like, I just wanted to drink. How old do you think you were? I was 11. And you're on a, and you had your own motor motorcycle. You're on the back of your no, dad's. I'm on the back of my dad's. I'm okay. 11 years old. Well, you stole yeah. one at nine. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I figured they gave you one at 10 and a half. No, man, my cousins all had dirt bikes. I never had shit. That's why I had to steal them. So what happens when you have this phenomenon of craving? Uh, nothing. I don't know what it is. It just kind of passes me, but it was there, you know, so the first opportunity I got to drink again, I did. But it wasn't like, it was like, I didn't understand it at the time, but I was drinking to breathe. And, and, and that was the focus when I, I oh yeah, I want to drink. Because, you know, my mind, once I triggered that off, when I got super wasted and sick, it didn't matter that my body was failing and stuff like that. That, that peculiar mental twist happened. You know, my body experienced alcohol, wanted more. Right. You know, um, classic. Yeah, and it alcoholism. was like, like I can remember that because I'm, I'm a fucking mad dog alcoholic, man. Like, and drug addict, man. I was bad when I was out there. I, I was the lifer. You know what I mean? Where they're like, he'll, he'll never get. He's there's no fucking way. You know. Um, when do you find yourself drinking alcoholically for the first time? Like, when, when does it settle in and you're oh, like, I am this guy? As a, as a teenager, you know, we were. So I ended up going to juvie for a while. Right? Oh, wait, hold on. When the tattoo was 12? The first yeah. one, the, the dead Kennedy's yeah, tattoo? Yeah, yeah, it was like 12 or 13. And what was the punk rock stuff you were really into then? And, and like, what were the bands you were listening to? And, like, and, um, and, and how does the drug addiction start to develop then, or is it mostly alcoholism? Uh, it's alcohol and drugs, right? Drugs are a little harder to get a hold of when you're a kid, but we'd get a hold of them, you know. Um, yeah, the punk rock thing started with, you know, the home life was insane at this point, man. And um, and the nourishing punk community. Yeah, you were and, like, and this was the it. fucking 80s, yeah, man. Yeah, it was a good time for punk rock. Like, it was, this is the thing that no one now will ever be able to experience was, was we were fucking freaks. Like, no one looked like us. When you dared to be different like that back then, it was dangerous, you know. And you had to have a community. 
Uh, people were fucking, we'd get chased all the time. We'd have people jump us all the time, calling us faggot. Call, they just couldn't understand, you know? Nobody stepped out of the norm, you know? Who were the bands? Uh, it was all the typical early 80 bands, Black Flags, Circle Jerks, Dead Kennedys, you know. Then I got into European stuff like Exploited, Blitz, Cockney Rejects, you know what I mean? And the punk rock was punk rock then. There wasn't all these different factions of it. Right. You know, there were skinheads, there were punk rockers, and, um, you know, even the hardcore scene, there wasn't really this, everybody hung out, you know. Now you've got like all this. What is it, 77 punk? Oh, you have the uh, UK 82 dudes, the fucking, you know what I mean? And everybody thinks they're better than everybody else. Uh, Back then it was more of a level playing field. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like everybody wanted to do something new and have a creative, like, unique idea and brand that represented their individuality. You know what I mean? And it was like, if you do something, people would like be like, oh, that's fucking badass. Great, killer. Even if it looked fucking silly, you know? Because it was something different. It, it was, was unique. And it was a way, like we talk about yourself. the God-shaped the god -shaped hole, the God-sized hole, and people use punk rock to fill it 100%. Oh, absolutely. I used all kinds of shit to fill that, man. That wasn't drugs and alcohol. Literally, you give me anything that gets me outside of myself. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> like, I'll fucking abuse them fuck out of it well first i'll get into it then i'll get obsessed with it and then i'll abuse the fuck absolutely out of it. absolutely and so talk about like punk rock gave me a community it gave me kind of a purpose in people what about like straight edge punk rock versus alcoholic punk rock versus drug addicted punk rock like is everybody chilling together like how do you be yeah everybody's chilling together until the 90s so the straight edge thing wasn't really that Major. They were just a few people here and there, you know. But then it really kicked off was the late 80s, early 90s, you know. Especially in the early 90s, the straight edge thing, for, for me, like, really kicked off that, you know. And punk rock, you know, was kind of... Ebbing and flowing. Yeah, going through a lot of, you know, all the old bands were gone, you know what I mean? But there was a lot of new shit starting. That's when I got into, like, all, all the crust punk squatter shit, you know. I was back here in New York, and... You know, um, living in abandoned buildings, we wouldn't shower for fucking months. When's the first time you did heroin? Okay, this is a great story. So, <laughs> first time I did heroin, I was in, uh, I was in San Francisco, and uh, yeah, San Francisco was wild. Man. Were you a crust punk in San Francisco? Yeah, I was. I was kind of into that. I was just like a punk rocker, but I was getting into all those bands like the Amoebics, you know, Hell Bastard. Doom. As as a middle class New York City Jew, okay. Yeah. You, this is where I grew up. Yeah. I grew up in this apartment. Yeah. In this city, and like I saw, crust punks. You know what I mean? Even mm -hmm. as a junkie, I saw it. I never was connected to it, uh, but I'm really curious to know everything I can know about it. Yeah, it was just something new. I mean, it it was it was some shit they were doing in uh in England, you know, and over in Europe, and they had been doing that since the it was like anarchist mid eighties, right? it was like early eighties. What what yeah, was the deal? There's a lot of politics involved in it too. It was, you know, anti-fascist, uh, anti-establishment. It was, you know, uh, we lived in squats. New York was the only place that squatting actually really existed in, in, the, in the United States. Did you know the band Choking Victim? Choke? Yeah, I played in a band with those guys. Do you know Me Sasha? And Sturgeon had a band. Do you know uh, Sasha? Crick Blast. I know Sasha. I, he went to my elementary school and my oh, high school. Really? I, he took me to my <laughs> first concert. 
He took me to Brian Adams in 1986 yeah. at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, I, I was. Those, He's been on the show. Those guys were my friends. Okay. So back then, that's who I was hanging out with, even before Leftover Crack and Choking Victim. Yeah. Me and Sturgeon were fucking hopping trains, traveling, and he started this band. And we ended up starting a band later called Craig Blast. You know, what did you play? I sang. Nice. You know. Okay. So when do you think you? When would you describe your? You want me to your, tell you about San Francisco? And I want to hear about heroin? the first time you were doing drugs regularly as a teenager. First. Okay. I don't want to fuck you up. I do want to hear that. You're story. kind of getting all over the place. I can't dude. help it. I'm excited. There's a lot of information. <laughs> the first time I started doing drugs regularly was when I got out of juvie. I did a year and a half in juvie for uh, burglary, you know, and um, I get out. Again, we're back with my mom at this point, right? My mom has this like HUD housing like kind of projects deal, and she lives with her girlfriend Lavon, right? And it's me and my sister. We have an apartment all to ourselves. This place was the party fucking spot. You know what I mean? And um, we basically just did whatever we wanted, you know. And my mom would come home once a week. She would wash clothes or buy us food, which would be like frozen pizzas and little Debbies. And then, uh, you know, take off. And um, that's when the drugs really started to take center stage. I was fucking with meth, you know. And doing coke, you know. Cause this Those were the Arizona first two still. that you really got into. Yeah. I just realized I didn't ask when the first time you ran away was. Oh, first time I ran away, I was like nine years old. So yeah. you were constantly running yeah. away because it was so broke. And then between eleven and thirteen, I'd run away like twenty six times. Right. You know, but you're a little kid living on the streets. Please pick your ass up. You know what I mean? So I'd end up back and back and back. It was a crazy time. This also explains the PTSD at the level of Vietnam vet. I mean, you came from a really horrible situation. Yeah, and then when I was in juvie, I spent three months in solitary confinement at the age of fucking 14. Oh my you know God. what I mean? It was like, and it wasn't like they are now. It wasn't like a reform school. It was prison. And it was like, uh, you know, you wear blues. You got to march everywhere. The cells were fucking disgusting. I was in this place, Adobe Mountain and Catalina Mountain. I mean, you can look those places up. Catalina ended up getting shut down. Uh, Adobe's still there, but there's just, you can read about how fucked up it was online, Um, especially back in the 80s. So, uh, we're back in the apartment with your sister. Yes, back in the apartment. And, you know, we're the only ones with the pad, so people wanted to use our pad, you know, to fucking whatever drug dealers will come over and this and that and next thing i know i'm doing a lot of math right and then me and my buddy jason he was my best friend you know um his mom sold meth and then she catches us doing it and she just starts doing it with us <laughs> you know what i mean so like we're fucking you're smoking it or shooting it smoking it i'm not shooting it at this time i had tried once but i, I don't know it, it said there's some shitty math because it didn't give me that cough and fucking come in my pants feeling yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what i mean that yeah, spiritual it's... fucking out of body experience <laughs> yes. you know um so uh yeah drugs become a regular thing right then i'm back in new york you know and um i end up out in san francisco and that's when it really took off you know i'm hanging out with all these street kids there's all these punk rockers on the streets out there on market street 
And I hook up with this girl, Candy, who was kind of a street prostitute. You know what I mean? Punk rock chick. She was really, you know, I, I really liked Candy, you know. And these other kids, and they're all smoking crack, shooting crack, you know, doing this and that. And, you know, I was always kind of like, because of my mom, like, I'll never do heroin. You know, I'll never. Because she was straight do up that. heroin addict. Yeah. You know, I'll never do needles like that, you know, of course. But all it took was Candy going Dutch. Do you want some of this? Can I put this in your arm? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? It didn't take no arm twisting. You know what I mean? And I remember the first time I shot up, we were in the Bristol Hotel. We had all panhandled, got enough money to get a hotel. It had been raining for fucking weeks. And Just the two of you, or was it Nah, there were some other kids there. And um, But Candy was kind of like my street partner. You know what I mean? And she also made a lot of money panhandling and hooking, you know? So, um... We're up there, they get a bunch of crack, and, um, and, and they're shooting it, though. You know, you take lemon juice, you break it down with lemon juice, and, and she's like, she's like, does she want some? And I see her do it at first, and she's like, shh, shh, whispering, and uh, like, I'm like, yeah, fuck it, you know? So they hit me, and I'm sitting there, right? And fucking, it just hits me, man. I can hear the traffic down the fucking street, man. Everything gets so loud, the whole room. It's just like, there's this kid in front of me, Steve. He's fucking hitting a pipe, and it sounds like a jet engine. I get this warm feeling all over my body. And then all of a sudden, the whole room starts going, and I'm like, and I look at Steve, and he goes, earthquake. A fucking earthquake hit. The first time I shot fucking cocaine, right right when it was hitting me, right. the whole fucking building actually started shaking. So every shot after that, you're like, <laughs> why isn't it an earthquake now? Yeah. Right? And I'm like looking, and the pictures are shaking on the wall. The fucking side of the couch is moving. And, um, and I fucking loved it, you know. But when heroin came into play, you know, I remember I was with this dude, Al, you know. And we're walking, and he, he was a dope fiend. He would break out a window, steal a bunch of books. It was back when he could sell books. Like, it was a good hustle, Yeah, you know. And um, he gets some dope, and he's like, yo, you want something? I'm like, yeah, sure. And, you know, again, I don't even know how to fucking put the shit in my arm, man. And I'm like, you know. You I trust give him my Al, arm. Al to yeah. shoot you And up. I'm like, how much should I do? And he goes, well, I do this much. And this dude had a fucking habit. Right. Dude. So he does like a whole quarter gram. Of black tar heroin, you know, um, hits me with it, and I'm fucking just done. Like, it was the first time in my life I ever experienced true peace. There was no fear, there was no regret. It was the warmest feeling I'd ever felt. Well, it's a life. much different feeling than meth and coke. I mean, I guess barbiturates might have. Yeah, but you know, with meth and coke, it's still this and that. With with heroin, it's it's. It's freeing. There's no, you're, you're, there's no fear. There's no, none of that shit. Everything went away. I had the exact same reaction to Everything it. Everything went away. And, and I didn't have your experience. I mm-hmm. had neurotic, anxious, Jewish brain. I well, took I mean, it, and all of a sudden, I finally every, felt okay. Everyone has the same experience with heroin. That's what it does, you know? But I think it's also about what it medicates. Like, I think you had this fucking serious trauma. I had serious anxiety. It worked for both of us yeah. in the same way. It's going to do anything. So... But I'm too high. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I'm it was too big of a shot. I'm about to OD. But then I'm walking down the street, and it was the same thing of when I first drank, you know, with that girl putting the thing on my head. 
I got candy on one side and this other girl on the other, and they're carrying me around. I got Taking puke care on you, me, and right. I'm like, this is fucking heaven. <laughs> you know, Finally. I'm in this grimy city, just loving the fucking flavor, man. And um, But that was it, man. Heroin, whenever I got the chance to do it, I did it. But I was traveling so much at that point that it, it didn't really catch up to me. Well, how are you traveling so much? Uh... Well, I was in the punk rock scene at that time. We all started traveling, going to different cities because there's punk rock going on in all these places. There was no internet, so the world wasn't connected. So you had to go to these places to experience what was going on. That's why we were all in San Francisco. There was this huge punk rock scene there. There was like a fucking cabillion bands that were just amazing, and you wanted to be a part of it. Was that you know? the, that was that the Fang era, not the Fang era? Uh, no, that's the early '80s with the Fang. Fang was in the early '80s. Yeah. What was the band? When what were the bands out when you were? Uh, in when I was there, it was like Filth, Grimple. Okay. Uh, you know, and I was hanging out with all those dudes. You know, uh, it was like right before Green Day signed over, right, 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 right. and and all of that. You know, and um, you know, Econo Christ, uh, Rancid had just started, you know, and I, I was staying with those guys, with the dudes from Rancid and, and Econo Christ. Tell us about what it's like to be a young drug addict traveling the country to experience punk rock before it exploded. Oh, uh, yo, it was wild, man. It was all about experiences, dude. Like, you were living it, all right? Now, when you're at home and you're looking at these records, you're hearing about these things. You're not experiencing, you're just hearing about them. You're not a part of it. You know what I mean? You're part of your own little local scene. When we were traveling around, I was a part of every fucking one. And I immersed myself in it, you know? And it was like, so I, I remember kicking it, smoking out of Billy Joel's eight foot fucking bong right before, while they were recording Dookie, you know, and not. These dudes weren't famous, you know. I was living, I ran into, I was in I was in Berkeley, California. I'm walking in the fucking rain, just got there, and I run into this dude. And I'm like, yo, I just got here. I know a couple people, you know. But back then, you could show up. You'd run into a punk rocker. They'd be like, come to my house. Was it obvious that they were going to make it to story, you? Bro. So they were like, just come to my house, you know. And it was just like that. There was a lot of unity in the scene. So I go over there, I'm staying with this dude for a couple days, and then he's like, oh man, I, I gotta go to band practice, blah, blah, but let's get together, we'll go down to Telegraph later. I'm like, all right, I'm like, what band are you in? He's like, Rancid, it was Tim Armstrong. That's crazy. <laughs> so like, um, and it, it was just like that, you know? So, so you were immersed in everything right before it all exploded. He was you know? in Operation Ivy, though. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. How big was That's Operation Ivy? That's what we knew. I we didn't really know about Yeah, Rancid. I loved Operation Ivy when I Operation was Operation Ivy was huge, dude. But, like, but how, but he's, like, just chilling and, and runs into you, and it's not a big deal. Yeah, they weren't famous people. Opera even being in Operation Ivy, everybody knew who Operation Ivy was, but they weren't fucking no. Metallica. No, you know, like but they were so good. They were great, man. Like Operation Ivy, that, that's a crazy story. They got so big so quick that they broke up. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, Rancid was just starting, and you know, he played the seven inch for me. I remember, and I was like, oh, this is fucking great. You know, like it was perfect. It was like the right mix of punk rock and Op Ivy, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, you were just a part of these scenes. And I get back to New York, you know, there's bands like Nausea playing. There's this whole squatter scene going on here, man. So I'm like in Alphabet City. This is home. You know what I mean? I'm back on the East Coast. 
immerse myself just in that scene. We're living in squats. There's so much unity. There's so much community. And you could do whatever the fuck you wanted back then. No cops went past uh, Avenue B. They didn't go past it. No. You know, I was talking to my buddy uh, Roscoe yesterday who was around back then. And it was like if you ran from the cops back then in the park, they would chase you. You ran right into Alphabet City. They stopped chasing you, you know. And uh, I remember burning a car down on Ninth and C one time. It just burned all night. And no fucking ambulance or fucking uh, fire department came. And then the car sat there for two years. Like, it was abandoned. And that was the early 90s. Yeah, like late 80s, early 90s. Um, it was before real gentrification hit Manhattan. There was too. no gentrification in right, Manhattan. Then. Right, right, No, no. And Manhattan was still in ruins, you know? You it know, was a great time for, for music in Manhattan. Yeah, and back then it was like... Like the meatpacking district was actually packing meat. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, everything was so different back then, man. Mm -hmm. um, you know... There's places where people hang out right now. You just did not fucking go. No. Like no. over by Katz's, dude. I know. Back then, like, they didn't like, have stalls on the bathroom doors. Fuck no. Because everybody's falling out. <laughs> they didn't have them anywhere. Like, I remember if, when, when, when you walked down and got towards Rivington, there weren't even any street lights, man. It would be, like, black, you know? So we always talked about when we were, like, going to go score dope. We'd either go down to Avenue D or we'd, you know. Or if you had to go south to Houston, it was like, fuck. All right, I'm going south to Houston. This is rough. You know what I mean? And then, but south of Delancey was like, you're going to get fucking murdered or robbed. You know what I mean? If you got a girl with you, she's probably going to get raped. You know, it was crazy. When does your habit really kick in where it's like, because you were traveling, you were kind of ahead of the habit. Yeah, so I was always kind of staying ahead of it, getting a little sick. And you know, when you first start out, it takes a minute to develop a habit. Yeah. You really get sick. But once it really grabs onto your receptors, it's three days, you know? So... I remember uh, I was here and I was just shooting bags of dope every day for like six months, you know, and that's all I was doing. And I was going out to the West Coast, but I was going to stop and see my sister, you know, because she was living in San Diego at the time. So I cruise out there, I get to her house and I'm just feeling funny, you know. And all of a sudden, I get fucking, I'm dope sick. Like, I'm fucking can't sleep on my legs for like the good. Did you know spoke. right away? I didn't know. Right. No. So I had eaten some fucking taco salad, and I thought I got food poisoning. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's funny how the mind is like, no, I'm not. It what? couldn't be. It couldn't, couldn't be. be. It couldn't you be. Know? It's not me. It's like when you wake up from an overdose. You're like, what? No, I didn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. But the so weirdest I, thing when you when you first get dope sick, I think is that's when you start deciding, how am I going to commit to this thing? Because I can't feel like this again. Because if you oh, use, yeah. you know you need to keep up with it. Well, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm never going to do this again. Meaning opiates, meaning yeah. heroin. I'm not going to do this, or I'm not going to get strung out. You know? That's, that's, I think that's a very interesting point. Yeah. It's a very important crossroads that you make. You're it either is. like, am I going to stop using or am I never going to stop using? Well, brother, you already lost the power of choice way before that. I lost the power of choice way back when I was a kid and I started using every day. And when I started doing heroin, I lost the power of choice right then. I was never going to be able to not do it on my own. Because the phenomenon of craving is way different That's when you're it. dealing with the heroin. fucking mental obsession, and the even with alcohol, man. Like, right. I mean, alcohol was the hardest thing for me to put down. 
You know what I mean? It, it's not what brought me to my knees, man. I wasn't even drinking. I used to say heroin cured my alcoholism, you know? But when it came to me making that decision where it's like, I have to stop everything if I'm going to stay sober, alcohol was the hardest one to let go of. You so know? San Diego, taco salad, fucking. So what do you do? Shit hurting. I, I just I sweat it out. You know, I was young. Sweat it out. Got through it. Then I head up to L.A. I'm in L.A. Score some dope <laughs> immediately. And then, uh, yeah, and then it's on, you know. And at one point, I got to, um, <clears throat> I was back in Phoenix, right? I ended up back in Phoenix somehow. Me and my friend were traveling through, and I, I, I got a girlfriend. And now I'm in Phoenix. And there was, like, a cool little scene going on there. But, I'm, you know, Arizona has its own microchasm of drugs, like dope. The best dope in the fucking country. And it's, like, you have, like... 16 different delivery numbers. It's not like other places, man. The Why is that? I never heard anything about Arizona dope. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, you know, you get all the cartel. You got all those people there, you know. So it's like it, it's, it's a heroin town, right? Um, Phoenix. Yeah, Phoenix. So, uh, yeah, I'm locked in, man. I am so strung out at this point where it's like I, and, and I fucking know it, you know. Um, but I'm still naive. So me and my girl have this little apartment, and I had been going up to Alaska, too, to work. We had done that a couple times. And uh, Wait, what did you do up in Alaska? Fishing. You did, like, yeah. Deadliest Catch shit? Like, yeah. Okay, crabbing. Yeah. There and, was no and Deadliest Catch at the time. You know, I mean, yeah. you were working on those boats. Yeah, though. I worked on crab goats. I worked on, 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 on saners, on longliners, and I worked in canneries. I worked in processing boats. Would you, like, go up there, strung out, kick up there, get a bunch of money, and I'm going to get back? to that. So... No, but we'd have people mail us dope up there. That was always my fantasy, so, was to flee to Alaska to make a bunch of thousands of dollars so I could come back and use for stretches. That was, I never yeah, did it. That, well, that's what happens. So at this point, I'm like, I, you know, we end up getting on methadone. I get on methadone for the first time, you know, thinking I'm clean now, you know. And methadone's a whole other nightmare. What city did you get on methadone? This Phoenix? was in Phoenix, okay. right? So I, I, I get on methadone. And, you know, I, at, at this point, the delusion still works for me, man. I think there's going to be another day. I think there's going to be a day when fucking I put this thing down. I'm going to find something with purpose. I'm not going to feel the need to do this. Like, this isn't my whole life. This shit ain't got me. I'll be able to get past it. It's going to be the right town, the right girl, the right situation. My band's going to do really well. Something. It's just a chapter, a grim yeah. chapter. Yeah, exactly. And, like, so I'm on, like... 80 milligrams of methadone. Mm. I got a four gram a day dope habit. Mm. And I'm like, I'm going to go to fucking Alaska and kick. Because I'll have no choice. There's no dope up there. This is my favorite kind of story. Dude. So you could sell weed up there. My brother-in-law was sending me like quarter pounds of weed. And like a quarter is like $200. You know, like it's really expensive up there. It was at the time. A hit of acid was like $20 up there, you know. <laughs> So, like, I'm like, I take a couple sheets of acid up there and sell it and blah. I don't do acid, you know, and, and fucking, uh, and I'm like, and I'll get clean. Like, I have no choice. I'm not thinking about how brutal this is going to be. I'm so naive. So, I get a bunch of dope, and it ends up, I got friends driving up to Bellingham, coming through Arizona. I jump in the car with them. I have enough dope to get me up there. 
And then uh, I, I get up to Bellingham, I run out of dope. And all I got is my money for the fucking sheets of acid that are going to get sent. But I got to get to Alaska. So I buy a bunch of shitty fucking heroin in Bellingham, Washington. Yeah. I get on the ferry boat. This shit is not even holding me. At this point, I'm starting to come off of the fucking methadone, you know. And I have to do a lot of dope, dude. Like, and they didn't give you a lot of take-homes? A lot of 80 million. You don't get any fucking take-homes. Yeah, no. Um, so we're not even partway up there. I'm probably in fucking, uh, you know, uh, fucking Prince Rupert, Canada or something. And, um, and when you're up there, you're like at the end of the fucking world, you know. You don't see civilization at all for five days on this fucking boat. I fucking, I have these two rigs, right? And they broke. And I was a master at fixing them. I had them cut in half, I sharpened. These, they were unusable, man. They broke. I was like, fuck. I could not get them to work. And so I'm trying to sniff this shit. It's not working. I get so fucking pissed. I had this uh, Star Wars outfit bag, you know, that I kept everything in. I fucking, fuck you. I threw it off the boat, just watched it land in the ocean just floating man towards the Bering Sea and I'm like I knew right then I was like oh I'm fucked you know I start getting sick man and 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 this is there's people fucking everywhere I'm on a boat on a ferry boat and there's two decks and you pitch a tent on the deck or you sleep on the fucking they got these like lawn chair things you know and I'm laying there and I'm fucking sweating and I had you know when I was high I made all these friends you know and like they're like, what's going on, Dutch? You okay? And I'm like, oh, I just missed my family, you know. And <laughs> dude, fucking day two, I'm fucking levitating, man. I'm like falling down. I'm puking. I'm trying to lay in between these fucking seats, and I'm shit. I, I have never still kicked that hard in my life, man. Kicking methadone and a big ass dope habit, dude. It was like explosive. It Cold was just turkey. the worst nightmare. Cold turkey. Finally, the skipper and them, they all come out to me. And they're like, yo, what's going on? And I just fucking told them. I'm like, yo, listen, I'm coming off of methadone and heroin. And they were like, oh, well, shit. You know, they had a jail cell in the bottom of the boat. And uh, they didn't lock me in it or nothing. But they were like, you know, we got to get you away from these fucking people. You know, what you said. And, they, and, and they let me kick it down there, you know. And, and oh, my God, it was fucking in a boat that's making all these noises. I'm in the bottom of this boat going through the worst kick of my life. Nobody's Finally, coming with Valium. No anything. one's coming. There's nowhere to go, bro. I'm at the end of the world. I'm thousands of miles from anything. Horrible. What like, a terrible plan. I'm fucked. What a terrible plan you have. So, yeah, no. <laughs> well, I, so, um, we end up in Juneau, Alaska, man, and I get off the boat. You know, I got to make another boat anyways to go to Sitka, you know. And I'm fucking dragging my big ass backpack. It's freezing fucking cold, dude. And, um, you know, my boat don't leave till the next morning. I'm still so fucking sick, dude. And then there, there was a little ticket booth and I had a heater in there. So I broke in there. You know, this is at night and I'm laying there and I got the heater on. And then it really starts hitting me, man. Like my legs literally felt like they were going to explode my arms. I felt like every moment was just the end of the world. and Every moment lasts uh, forever. Dude, forever. Um, like, time stops, and it, this is just an eternity thing, you know? So I, I say, fuck it, man. I go to the fucking payphone right there, and I call 911 on myself. And I was like, look, I need a fucking ambulance. Like, I can't even function, you know? 
and these two cops pulled up, man, and they were like the nicest cops in the world. They're like, what's going on, eh? And I'm like, uh, I'm coming off a of methadone and heroin, and they're like, oh, that's some pretty bad stuff. <laughs> like Canadians? I, no, but they talk like that okay. up there, and nice. I'm like, and and they're like, and they're like, yeah, I got a cousin in Seattle messing with that. Like, you want a cigarette? You know? And they were cool as hell, man. They're like, oh, they'll get you taken care of. They took you to the hospital. So ambulance pulls up, takes me to the hospital, dude. This isn't Juno. I get to the hospital. I'm fucking sitting there. There's no one in this hospital, dude. You know? And these doctors don't know what to do. At this point, they didn't have heroin addicts up there. And I, I remember seeing the doctor going through medical books. What did you see? Were you like, I could use like, some, an opiate? Give me some. I was, I was saying benzos and right. shit. You yeah. know what I mean? He's like, well, what do they usually give you when you're coming off? I'm like fucking you know xanax or something like I that could use two milligrams so so he pulls up because well we got methadone and he gives me like 20 milligrams which isn't gonna do shit right i'm so far along in detox man i'm on day three at this point which is the worst day i'm like i'm, I'm at the peak of it and he goes listen man the only detox in alaska is right next door and it ended up being the only medical detox spot in Alaska was in Juneau when it was right next door to this hospital. And in my mind, I'm like, I can't, you know, I got to go. And finally they talked me into it. I'm like, all right, I'll, 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 I'll try it, you know. So I go over there and I'm like, yo, I need more methadone. And this woman comes and gives me some more. And it was funny. She was this little lady. I'm laying there and I'm literally doing flips in the bed, man. And she comes in and she goes, oh, got the heebie-jeebies, do we? <laughs> I was like, fuck you. I'm like, how much methadone are you giving me? Because this isn't working. And she's like, well, we can't tell you that. And I'm like, listen, I was in charge of my own dose at the clinic. You know, I, th this is not doing anything for me. Finally, I got pimp. And I was like, yo, I could do this shit on the fucking streets. And these poor people, they just wanted to help me. She's like, all right, hold on, hold on. And then they kept bringing me doses. And I'm just flipping and turning and just like in total detox hell. Next thing I realized, I wake up. I don't even remember falling asleep, but I woke up and the lady's sitting at the bed. It's light, you know, it's daytime, and she gives me another dose. And my body was in so much fucking shock, man. I was, like, walking out of there, and I'm like, I got this red mohawk. I'm in fucking Alaska. There's all these, like, patients, you know. And they end up admitting me, and because uh, I'm like, what am I going to do, you know? So they get me with the doctor, right? He's this old hippie Alaska dude, what you would think a fucking Alaska psych doctor would look like, you know? And he's like, um, he's like, listen, man, you know, we're going to put you on methadone. And I'm like, but dude, if you put me on methadone, I'll be in the same situation when I get out of here. I just came here to get off of methadone. Like, fuck, man, it's not going to work. He goes, no, 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 we're not going to do it like that. We're not going to do it like they do it in the lower 48, you know? We're going to do it what it was designed for, you know, Vietnam vets and shit. He's like, he's like we're going to bring you up real high, and then we're going to bring you down. And, dude, I was fucking playing basketball. I was like... You were well. Yeah, I was well. I was in there for two and a half weeks, and then they cut me loose and gave me my last remaining doses with pills, and then I fucking... I was kicked. So they gave you a perfect kick. Perfect kick, dude. So every... I, I was on... I mean, like, I still had the mental shit, of course, the obsession and all of that. No, no, no. But, but like, I, I was on methadone for years and years ugh, and years. Dude, I got up to, so like, brutal. 140 milligrams in Los Angeles. You couldn't back then. You couldn't go... I mean, I mean, when I was on it back in the 90s, you couldn't go above 100. Where I was now at... I know people that are on, like, 400 fucking milligrams. That's I was, insane. I was in Los Angeles in the early 2000s, and I, and I just kept using, so they kept raising my dose. 
and I got off of it over time, but it takes so long. I'm, oh, I'm excited dude. about this hippie Alaskan doctor. <laughs> yeah. Who, we got to find him. Well, dude, that's what methadone's designed for. These clinics are just cash cows. You know what I mean? They, they, and they tell you you're going to have to be on it the rest of your life. You won't live the rest of your life on methadone. You know how bad it is, man. Deteriorates your bones. It's, My mom was on it 14 years. She had right. no teeth left. Right, right. She was like basically crippled. I remember you know? when I first got off of it, I would be going to bed and I would start hearing these clicking in my knees. Yeah. And I would be like, that's got to be the methadone. Yeah. You know, because it never, it never happened before that. Yeah. And it still, it still does. So you walk away from that clinic fucking pretty physically okay. Yeah. But the mental shit is still happening. Yeah, and I'm still a young man at this point. Do man. you have acid in your bag or money for acid? No, I had money. Did you become an acid baron of Alaska or that didn't happen? No, I, well, I did. I sold acid up there, but no. I was never the baron of shit, man. I could never <laughs> hold it together long enough. So I get there, and after having this traumatic event, all I want to do is get back to my girl in fucking Arizona. Mm. You know, so uh, I end up... Uh, you know, getting the acid, sold it for enough to get a fucking. I just, I gave it to my friend. I'm like, buy me a plane ticket. I'll give you these sheets of acid. I had enough. I had enough yeah. Alaska. And then fucking, I fly back. She picks me up at the airport, man. And it's like, oh. And I had the firm resolution that I'm not gonna shoot dope. I'm not gonna get. You high. had been through it. Yeah, this is it. I'm done. I'm done. And I fucking meant it. Of course. That's the crazy thing is I meant it. It's the best. Within 24 hours. I'm fucking shooting dope again in Phoenix. And then goes the next 17 years of my life. You know, um, you know, I remember at some point it was like, I remember always thinking that there'd be another day, that this is just a phase, this and that. But, you know, as well as you know, I woke up that one day and it was like something had broken. And I knew. You were done. That. Not that I was done. No, I mean, you were done with life, that yeah. you were, yeah, you were yeah, committed yeah. to this I, thing. I, I knew that every day was going to be the same, just a little bit worse. I was never going to get past this. How did you I keep up and with it? I went on another seven years that way. But how did you keep up with it money-wise? Oh, I, I did everything junkies do. Stole, robbed, like... All that shit, man. Um, fucking prostitution. But that's a long time. That kind of a run... Fucking yeah. 17 years. Dude, by the time I got, when, when I got sober, man, I was the only one left out of the original crew that were getting, they were all dead, you know? Um, and it was like, I'm around all these other people, you know? And it was like, you know, when you get to the end like that, when it's just, it absolutely stops working. And I went another seven years with it not working. But I remember I was in, living in New Orleans. It was, it was me and my girl, Callie poor thing and um katrina hit so we ended up out in austin texas you know of course i show up there like all right we're, we're gonna get clean and then I'm, i've got a needle in my arm in fucking 24 hours i'm gonna get strung out and the first day we got there i showed up at my friend matt's place who's 24 years old and i pull up on him and he answers the door and he's yellow and i'm like dude like fuck and he's like, I know, shit just fucking happened, man. He's like looking at himself, his eyes, and I'm like... Jaundiced. Yeah, jaundiced as fuck. So we end up staying with him and his fucking psychotic girlfriend and these other two junkies. And I'm sleeping on the floor, and what's going on with Matt is he has liver failure. And I was there four months sitting there shooting dope right next to this dude, 
and just watching him deteriorate. Right. Until he looked like a swollen Ethiopian. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. His Skinny with that descended. Huge, right, right, right. His feet were swollen. He died, 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 looked like a skeleton in the face, man. It was like that fucking yellow turned into a yellow brown look, you know? And uh, it, it was, it's like I could see everything, man. It was weird. It was, um, it was like my hustles got so weak. I just did not have it in me. I'm like, I can't do this anymore, man. Like, I just, I, I can't, like, physically and mentally, emotionally, like, but I don't know how to stop. That ain't going to stop me. So it just got ugly and, and weird. And, and and I'm sitting there and, and fucking one morning I end up finding him dead, you know? Matt. Yeah, I hear his girlfriend crying. I walk in and he's fucking dead, you know? And it was just like, a 24-year-old kid, liver failure. Um... You know, paramedics, all that show up, they get him out of there. Of course, I steal some of the dope, you know, and uh, and do it. And then a couple days later, me and my girl, I score some dope. And then I cook it up. I do mine. I give her hers. And then she gives the rents to this dude that we were staying with. And within minutes, they were they were falling out with organ failure. Both of them. There was a bacteria in it. Yeah, it didn't do anything to me. And I'm like, fuck. Like, they were sick. And it was within fucking seconds. Their whole bodies just, ugh, and they fucking fell over. I had to get him to the ambulance, man. So I stole this dude's car. Fucking drove him to fucking the hospital. And, um, you know, she was dying in ICU, you know. And, um. I was sleeping on the ICU floor. And I was just, I was done. You know. She died in there? No, she didn't die. She ended up living. But with severe problems. What you happened? Know, organ failure. You know, all of that. She had to get a, a bunch of shit done to her surgeries. And, she was and never, this was she's never the fucking same. And afterwards. neither were you, right? No. So I'm, I'm so sorry, man, just to see you go through it right now. Like you, I mean, I'm sorry. And I don't, and I, and, and if you want to stop, you want to take a break. No, nah, no, nah, nah, we keep dude, going, dude. I swear. Dude, I do this when I share in front of fucking 300 people. But I'm, I, but I want to, you know, it's like, no, 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 it's good. I want to finish, I want to finish the story. Cause it's important. So, um, so then, uh, I remember a, a couple weeks or maybe even a month earlier, um, I run into somebody I know and they're like, hey man, I saw Mike, you know, a friend of mine, Mike. And he's like, he, he wants to see you. And he gave me a number. This is before we had cell phones and shit like that, right? So he gives me, he gives me this number written on a piece of paper and I'm sleeping on the ICU floor and I, I, you know, going through my pockets and I pull out this number, you know, I called him. And um, he was there in 10 minutes, you know. And I'm looking at this dude, and he was just like me. Like, he shot dope like me. He fucking, you know, got kicked out of every fucking place we ever went. You know what I mean? They used to call him Psycho Mike. Not because he was, like, a dangerous dude, but he was dangerous, but it was like... Mostly he, He'd take a hit of crack and think that there was dead bodies under the floorboard. You know what I mean? Um, 
he shows up, man, and he looks healthy. He's wearing clean clothes. He's got a car. I'm like, dude, what the fuck? You know, like, he's got this girl with him. But it wasn't the, the, the clothes and the car and the girl. He had peace of mind, and I could see it on him. You know what I mean? And I knew at that point that that's what it would take. And I'm like, but I had no idea how to get that. And I'm like, how the fuck did you? What did you do? What did you do? You know, and, uh, you know, he was in a 12-step program. You know what I mean? And he's like, look, dude, like, let me help you. Let me get you in a detox. Let me get you in somewhere, you know. Um, so he drugged me around for two weeks trying to get me into a detox, man. And, I mean, he's trying to give me fucking Suboxones and, and Benzos. But I figured out how to get high on the Suboxone. You just take Benzos and then you go shoot a lot of dope. You know, and it overrides it. So he's dragging me to meetings. I'm puking on the couches at meetings, man. I'm fucking, and nobody said anything, you know. Um, they were just happy you were there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, uh, yeah, but this week was crazy. You know, I'm in and out of the ICU to, to, to see my girl and make sure she's okay. And then, and then, uh. I, I, I go by my dope dealer's house. I do some dope. I'm on so many benzos. I'm blacking out, you know. Now, at one point, this, this happened multiple times. I'm sitting there. I fucking do the dope in her apartment. Next, I black out. She's, like, trying to pick me up. Like, Dutch, you got to get out of here. My mom's coming. But she's so dope with her mom. So I black out again. And then I'm sitting on the stairs, and I come to, and her mom's like, Dutch, come upstairs. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm cool. Black out again. I'm sitting in a bunch of grass, feeling the grass. Black out again. And then I come to, I'm running from paramedics. <laughs> I look behind me. <laughs> fucking paramedics chasing me with the fucking blue gloves on. I'm throwing shit out of my pockets. Blackout. While I was running, blackout again. And then I come to again, and I'm back up in her apartment. And she's like, come on, let's go. And then I come to a little bit on the drive. Blackout again, and then I come to in some kitchen doing a gigantic shot of cocaine. Wow. <laughs> you know, wow. pull me out of it. And that whole fucking week looked like that, man. I was just like knocking on death's door, man. Over and over. Dude, it was like, it, it was like the universe was, God was just telling me, he's like, dude, listen, this is it. Like, no one's fucking coming for you, you know? And um, I ended up getting in this treatment center. Um, first, they weren't going to take me. I was like, fuck, you know, like, what am I going to do? In Texas? Yeah, in Texas. And they had this program called Music Cares. Yeah. And they're like, did you ever play music? I'm like, yes. And I found, like, a fucking recording or something online. And and uh, it was enough to qualify me for the funding. I just interviewed the, the old executive director, Harold Owens. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he yeah. He was talking all about this stuff. Yeah, it was great, dude. Um, they're a great program, yeah, right? Yeah, they Did totally, they take you in? Oh, yeah. They put me through rehab, everything, man. And, um... You know, I needed to be taken out of the fucking game. You know, there was no... I remember I was still... I, 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 you know, the detox was like two weeks. And I remember on the last day of detox, where it was either I go or I go to rehab. And I've never been to rehab in my life. I've been in fucking psych hospitals and jails and prisons, but never been to rehab. I never was committed to go, you know? So this dude... Uh, <laughs> I ended up running to another friend, Hunt Sales... He wrote, like, Lust for Life, 
with Iggy Pop, played with David Bowie. He's just this OG dude, heroin addict from back in the day. I had him and Mike on my side, you know. And there was this big meeting at this fucking uh, rehab, because where the detox was, all the girls were. And then there was a place called The Ranch, and that's where all the dudes were. So I'm in the detox still, and they have this huge meeting, you know. And uh, I'm like, I'm good, you know. And I tell Mike, I'm like, you know, I think I'm just gonna, I think I'm just gonna go, you know, I'm, I'm good. And he's like, what the fuck? And I'm like, yo, I got a van. I had a van that ran on propane that didn't even work. <laughs> I'm like, I got shit. And he's like, motherfucker, you ain't got shit. If you go back out there, you're gonna be fucking high in 24. And I knew he was right. So I more went just because I didn't want to let Hunt and fucking Mike down, you know. So I go to this fucking rehab, and. Did you connect with Hunt through Music Cares? No. How did you wind up uh, knowing him? Just different friends, shooting Just dope. punk rock circles, yeah. heroin circles, whatever. Yeah, you know, and he was like a fucking legend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, but Hunt was super supportive, dude. He came out and visited me, like, every weekend, bringing me candy bars and cigarettes and shit. Yeah. And I'm looking at this dude, like, he's played with everybody, you know? And, um... You know, so it was like, uh, that really got me interested, too. I'm like, oh, there's people like me here, you know, in fucking sobriety. So uh, I get out to this rehab, and, and, you know, it wasn't talking to the inner child or any of the rehab shit they teach you that that did anything for me. It basically got me into, they gave me a fucking big book and showed me where fucking, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous was. But uh, it took me out of the game long enough to find out what was going on with me. And I learned a lot about the progressiveness of the disease. I learned about the disease. I learned about addiction. I learned about, you know, that I had lost power of choice. You know, and it was like, oh, fuck, I ain't got a chance. You saw yourself in the disease. Yeah. You saw, I yeah. have this fucking yeah. thing. 100%, man. And they were funny. This was in Texas, dude. They're different down there, man. They don't fuck around. And, uh, you know, there's this group of dudes. They were, like, placing bets on when I would fucking relapse. Right, <laughs> and nobody right. thought I would stay sober. Because I was like the wildest dude in there. I got in a fist fight in the middle of an AA meeting. Like, I was like a fucking feral animal when How I did came you get in. into a, a fist fight in a meeting? Well, it was actually with Mike. <laughs> um, you know, we just had a disagreement. During the meeting. Yeah, and he's like, well, well you know, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what we can do? Wah! And then fucking, <laughs> you know, people are screaming, Dutch, stop. It's not the spiritual way. But they didn't kick you out of the meeting back no, then. No, no. They just separated us, right. you know? Like, right. now they're kicking people out of meetings for fucking... No, we have a yellow card at our meeting now. It's insane. Do you know about this yellow card? No. It's like, if you are doing anything like that, we can ask you to leave the meeting and not come back. That's crazy. That's in our meeting That's now. fucking Because crazy. there was some people, like, who... Nobody got into a fight in our meeting, but yeah. there were some guys who, on bad days would like step to other guys and it scared a lot of people in the meeting. Yeah. So they busted out the yellow card. And now pe- <laughs> people are very conflicted about the yellow card. But keep Dude. going. All right. I mean, so think you- about think about like Bill W and back then. They had people swinging knives. There's no yellow cards. No. no there's no yellow cards. Um, so fucking you're in Austin, Texas. You're you're starting I to get been the kicked drip. out and dead if I got a, if there was a yellow card. If there's a yellow card for me, I would have got it back then. You know what I mean? Um so yeah I'm in Austin, Texas and uh I mean, I fucking jump on this thing. You know what I mean? And it's appealing to you like drugs were. Oh, dude, it was like it was like for the first time I was like 
I, I had direction. I had a second chance at life. Because for me, it was life or death. I knew I was going to die if I used, you know. That's still not going to keep you from doing it, though, you know, because I didn't stay sober. I stayed sober 15, almost 15 years, and I relapsed, man, because I quit working the program, you know. And, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to relapse. At what point do you think, okay, so you get sober in Austin. Do you come yeah. back here? Yes. When did you get I the end first up tattoo on your face? <laughs> Seriously. Um, I don't have that many tattoos on my face. You've got one, <laughs> two, three, four, five, six, I'd say seven plus. Yeah. So um, when's the first one? The first one was in the 90s. Which one? Uh, it was these right here, the yeah, diamonds, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they weren't diamonds at the time. They were fucking stars, but they blew out. Um, so they, it, one looked like the state of Texas. The other one just kind of looked like a fucked up star. Was it a serious decision? Were you like, fuck it? Were you high? Yeah. Oh, of course. I was always high. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty serious because back then people didn't have tattoos on their That's faces. That's my point. Like, that was the thing. Like, the only ones that had tattoos on their faces was us or murderers and criminals, man. Like... You know, a lot of my, 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 my friends in the fucking traveling squad scene, they were getting their faces tattooed in the early 90s, man. And it was like... It was very out of the ordinary. Oh, dude. It, it was, was like, very like, it was what's like, wrong with this over. guy? It's right. over. Like, right. Like, you know, that's uh, you committed to a way of life for the rest of your fucking life, you know? It was in that period, like, I mean, I don't know. There was something about... I don't even know how to explain this. Uh, that don't make any sense. But there was something about the existence of people with tattoos on their faces and anarchist punk rockers yeah. on the street. That, that was had us. Me, but that had me become a heroin, like just a lot, like a heroin addict. Like yeah. you know what I mean? Like th I was like, it's over for them. And in a way, I'm gonna sign up to this because it can be over. Yeah. I never, you know what I mean? I never put a tattoo no, on my face. No, 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 no. But I was it's like, the death I get of responsibility, it. bro. Right, exactly. You know, it's like I'm committing to this way of life. I never have to do this. You know, I never have to conform to this. Society, you know, because you know, we came whatever. from these fucking homes and these lives in society that did not work for us. So we were going to do our own. I, I never wanted to be a part of, like, what everyone else was doing. I mean, that, that, that was coming from the mind of a fucking child, though. You know what I mean? A really fucked up child. So, like, when I got these, though, man, it, you know, it was like, I don't care if you have tattooed to your fingertips and your fucking whole neck. When you put something on your face, it's different. people start looking at you different. People are scared of you. People are like, you know, it's different. Cops just stop you. You felt power and hatred and fear with it. Because you fucking, oh, you, right. I've always had a lot of tattoos, even for back then, you know, um, so it was like, I always knew I wanted to be covered in tattoos. Like the guy I stole pills from, my dad's roommate, Larry. Larry. He had sleeves. Uh -huh. You know, and I would fucking, I, I thought they were the coolest thing ever, you know, so I was always attracted to it. And then, you know, it was like if you saw somebody with sleeves back then, they were heavy, heavy dude. It's a serious thing. Yeah. It's a commitment. So, and it wasn't that easy to get, you know what I mean? Because there maybe was one tattoo artist in every town. So it wasn't like an easy thing to get, you know, like now you can fucking throw a rock and hit someone. You get the finance bro covered in tattoos. Um, so I ended up having some friends when I was really young that were tattooing. So me and my crew always had more tattoos than anybody, you know. And then the guys here in New York, like Vinny Stigma, Roger, all of them AF, you know, guys and all the hardcore scene, they had a lot of tattoos here because they had dudes doing them. You went to other places, they didn't, you know. Um so uh 
Yeah, I remember it was like mid '90s. I tattooed them on my face. Yeah, and it was just different. Now it's totally acceptable. Is it annoying to you how uh, mainstream tattoos are? As a serious I mean, old school renegade tattoo person, you know, because I was a tattoo artist for years. Like when I got sober, I started tattooing, you know, and uh, that was my trade the entire, you know, almost twenty years, you know. Um, so there, it was industry. What, this it was is good. this is what annoys me is that it's not that everybody gets them. I think that's great. It's great for the people of the industry. What is not good for the industry is when you have all these other people that are just picking up tattoo machines and tattooing people, and it's just a fad. Right, and it's not the culture. And they're trying to act like they're your equal. Like, I had to eat shit, go through an apprenticeship. I had to earn that. And I had to learn how to actually be professional. I had to learn how to do all kinds of different styles before I was even allowed to touch a person. You know, and, and that was a code. There was a code. And that code's existed forever. You know, and I, you know we're going to get people calling me a boomer and a gatekeeper on this, man. But it's there for a reason, and it's not going to go away. You know, there's plenty of people that started tattooing on their own that are great tattoo artists, man. When I was apprenticing, there was, you know, this dude, Nathan Hebert, man. And he is phenomenal, man. He's like one of the best black and gray artists out there now. I mean, he really made a career for himself in this. But he had just gotten out of prison and he didn't know how to use a professional machine. But he could do a fucking portrait, you know. He was a great artist. But he didn't, you know, he could do a portrait, but he couldn't do a rose. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is ass backwards. So he had to go through the apprenticeship with me just to learn how to do everything properly so you don't fuck people up, man. Well, it's a life thing. You know thing. what I mean? I, and like, I think the most... That's, that's mostly what annoys me, but I'm not even in the game anymore, so I don't give a fuck. Good, good. Yeah. Uh, I hear you. I don't have any tattoos. Like, uh, I don't have one tattoo. Cool. I, well, it is what it is. Dude, if I could go back, I wouldn't have any. It is what it is. It's like we are, you know, I think I, I think I didn't want to ever have a tattoo because I wouldn't want to be stuck with one thing. Like, I'm, I would want to change it. Like, and you can't change it. I don't know. Yeah, no. It doesn't Good for you. Well, well, that's the taboo you got to get over, right? So the, 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 the first one's always the bitch of the bunch. Right. And people think long and hard, and they usually get a fucking stupid tattoo on their first one. They, they try to get something safe, you know. And then you get around your third tattoo, and you're like, oh, yeah. Nah, and then and then you quit thinking about it so much, and then it's just all about coverage. Oh yeah, that looks badass. Put it right here. Right, <laughs> you know right, what right. I, mean? I got a little room over here, <laughs> right? So most important question I think is is to get fifteen years and to go out. Can we let's talk about it? Like, what's the fifteen years like? When does the program start to stagnate? And and dude, what's I would the love moment? to talk about this. This is what I talk about. You know, because it's my current experience with um, it's important because nobody thinks they can get fucking 15 years and then they decide if they ever have 15 years, they have it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, I got it. That's what I thought. So, listen, we know how I came in, man. Like Fuck. A street urchin, a fucking just serious you know, trauma. And I was 32 years old, you know, um, like a feral animal. I did not do anything. I learned how to do everything in Alcoholics Anonymous, man. You know, and uh but, you know, like I was saying earlier, you can't live off the food you ate yesterday, man. This is an everyday deal, you know. Um, so it was around my seventh or wait, no, around my eighth or ninth year. You know, I'm doing good. My life looks like it has never looked ever like you were here. I, I, yeah, I was here and in Texas. I was back and forth. 
Uh, next thing I know, I'm doing fucking runways. I'm a runway model, man. I'm in fucking movies. I'm, you know, I'm I'm fucking on, on the cover like I'm, in, you know, Vogue, and I'm in I'm in all these magazines. I'm the first tattooed guy that does runways, right? Um, so I was like I was like big shit for six months, <laughs> you know. Right, yeah. But everything else, man, I, I actually had a life, man. I had a house, I had cars, I had choppers. You know what I mean? And 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 my external life didn't represent. Like it, it, my my old life. Where you came from. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. There's the external and there's the internal, right? So around eight, I think it was like eight, eight or nine years sober. Um, my mother died, and how she died really fucked me up. Like nobody would talk to her. You know, my mother was an addict. I mean, she. I mean, she's at the fucking bitter end. You know, she's in upstate New York. She's living in this like fucking projects, you know, and and um, nobody will talk to her and she keeps getting kicked out of these homes. She had this husband that just enabled the fuck out of her, dude, who was like just more of an illness than anything. But he was out of the picture and my mother can't take care of herself. So I'm the only one talking to her. Right. And um, she uh. She was at that place of reasonableness. Cause my mother was very unreasonable, man, you know? And I'm like, yo, you need real help. Not another doctor, not another fucking prescription. You just lie to them anyways. You know, you need to get fucking help because this is, this, is, this is what this end looks like. And you had gotten help. Yeah. You had sh- yeah. seen and what she saw looks that. like. Right. I used to shoot dope with my mom. You know what I mean? Um... I remember being in gas station bathrooms with her, man. Me trying to hit her and her going, hurry the fuck up. And I'm like, shut the fuck up, mom. You know what I mean? And what kid goes through that? So I had a different kind of relationship with my mom. And she was still my mom, you know, like, you know, like anyone else's. So uh, she. Hold up. When you hit your mom, did you have to, did you shoot yourself up too at that point? Yeah. I did, I missed that era. That age. Uh, dude, 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 there's a lot of error. <laughs> this yeah, is like the adult life. Like, there's a lot that went on, man. We can't get through it all in this. So, I'm on the phone with my mom, and I'm like, I need real help. She's like, uh, yeah. You know, she's like, I'm just so fucking lonely. And it just broke my heart. You know what I mean? So, um, I said, hey, listen, if I get a hold of some people and in a group up there, can they come over, you know, and talk to you? Because my mother would never let anybody in her house. She's like, yeah. You know, I'm like, are you serious? Like, all right, this is an opportunity. You know what I mean? So I fucking get a hold of some dude in Rochester in the inner group. And he's like, yeah, man, we'll send some people over there right now. But you know how this goes, man. She got to call us, which I think is total fucking bullshit. You know, she needs to show willingness or whatever. Yeah, but that's bullshit. This is, this is for help, man. You're making a 12 step call, motherfucker. Go. You know what I mean? They don't have to come to you, you know? So, um, I'm like, yeah, bet. No problem. He's like, okay, I'm going to get some women's numbers. They'll go right over there and, uh, you know, just, just, just have your mom call. And I'm like, okay. So I, I call my mom and I'm like, Hey, listen, I'm gonna call you back in a minute. Cause like, he's getting this girl's numbers. He's going to give them to me. And then you call one of them. They're going to come over and they're going to help you, you know, get you started. At least give you some direction. And she's like, okay, thank you. And I couldn't believe that she was that willing. You know what I mean? My mom would never do that shit. Yeah. And then I hang up the phone. I call him back. I get the number. I call her back. No answer. You know, I call back again. No answer. Oh, my God. I'm at work. I'm at the tattoo shop. And uh, she, uh, 
you know, my mom would get all her methadone take home. She couldn't have it because she drinks it all. And then she called the police and say somebody broke in and stole it, you know, so she get more. Um, so I'm like, fuck, there it goes. You know, it wasn't surprising to me she didn't answer. I just figured she nodded out or she's over it. <clears throat> and then my sister calls me an hour later hysterical. She didn't even have to say anything. I just knew my mom was dead. Yeah. You know, <laughs> my mom had been on oxygen and she was smoking and she nodded out and a cigarette hit the oxygen and it Exploded. ignited and burned her to death. That's she awful. burned alive. I'm so sorry. You know, and it was on the fucking news as me and my sister are talking because they can't get in the building because there was all these oxygen tanks behind her chair that kept exploding. Right. And um, so this is like front page news. The next day, I immediately fly to, you know, upstate New York and uh, meet my sister. And it's this fucking blizzard going on, man. It's crazy. You know what I mean? But not for one second, dude, was I upset with God or anything, man. I, I have my sponsees calling me. I'm doing 10 steps with them. I mean, I'm in You're it, still man. in your program, 100%. The chaos, I do good. And I'm like, never questioned it. Like anything else traumatic in your life, man, it doesn't hit you till later. I remember like three months later hitting me, you know, and I was like, what kind of fucking God would do that? You know, right when this woman wants help, you know, who's lived this just traumatic life. Her whole life was just fucking trauma. Trauma. You know, you fucking burn her to death. Like what loving God, what universe would ever do this to, you know what I mean? So that's where it went for me. And that's thing, you know, I'm one of those dudes in there like, I don't believe in God. You know what I mean? And um, in a spiritual program. To, resentment starts to get yeah. big time. <laughs> and then it was a slow five year just whoosh, down until the point where I got no program. I'm not doing shit. I think I'm normal. It's like that spiritual but, strip poker. Yeah. Each thing is removed. It's one just thing slowly at a time getting. Until you're exposed. And I'm there like, I don't need that shit, man. Like, I look at my life. Look how big my fucking life is. Right. You're a tattooed runway model. Yeah. And then, I'm, you know, I, 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 I ended up getting married, and I was with this woman, and who, you know, she was amazing, but I was just a fucking nightmare to be with, man. So You know, when she met me, I was the coolest dude she had ever met within a year. You weren't. No. And she had every right. My dog had died. I had a dog through all of this, my dog Django, you know. And um, I got him, like, four months after I first got sober. You know, and when he died, it was literally the worst day of my life, man. Like, I never cried that hard in my life. Like, I put people to rest easier than I did him. And then me and my wife got divorced a week later. And then uh, I'm living with a friend of mine. We're building choppers. And uh, I run into this woman I knew from AA, you know. We all got sober at the same time together, her and this other dude. And they, 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 were, they were together. They went on to make millions in this, you know, roofing company. And uh, they even wrote their own book. I don't want to say the name of the book, so I don't think anybody should read it. But they had a huge <laughs> fucking following. Okay. It was a 12-step book. Okay. And it is fucking horrifying. Um, and it just, you know, I, I ended up with her. You know, she was a sex worker. Um, used to do porn, stuff like that. But she's out of AA at this point, you know. And she's like, but I'm good. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. So, um, you know, 
we run into each other at the tattoo shop. And immediately, I'm like, oh, I heard you and so-and-so aren't together. Well, you know what happened? And I was joking. I'm like, I was going to hit you up. And she just kisses me. And I'm like, whoa. Like, All right. And we, we exchanged numbers. And she's sending me fucking photos. <laughs> you know, a few months passed, man. And then I'm lonely laying there in my fucking apartment. I hit her up. End up going over there. You know, we fuck around and stuff. And, and uh, I'm like, she's awesome. She's fun. But I won't get attached. Look what she does for a living. You know what I mean? I, this, this this doesn't work for me. Other people maybe, but not me. You know. And then she's like, "So you don't do anything still?" And blah blah blah. You don't mind if other people do, do you? And I'm like, "No, nah, I don't give a fuck." And she pulls out a meth pipe, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh shit! I wasn't expecting that." Right. And then, like I said earlier, it suddenly occurred. I'm like, I remember sex used to be really good on meth. I'll just take two hits. You know, I didn't even see it as a relapse, man. I didn't even think about it as a relapse until after. That's how far gone I was. That's how much I was like fucking like this is the only thing that was missing in my life. And I was like, oh shit, I just relapsed. My sobriety was not even you weren't on so, my right, mind. right, 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 right. So you relapsed to have meth sex with this woman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> meth sex. And it was like a tool. It was like I'm gonna be fucking her anyway. Yeah, I might just, as well I'm do just some meth. It's, just, it's like right. taking a fucking Viagra it's like or something on my sandwich. <laughs> yeah, it's a garnish it. for what I wanted to do anyway. But dude, my body only knows one way to do drugs, man. And um, I end up fucking me and her hit it off, man. I end up falling deeply in love with this woman, man. You know, red flags fucking all over the goddamn place, man. But it was like, it, it was the strangest thing I ever fucking felt, dude, was it was every wound and trauma I had ever had felt filled in. With her? And I was like, yeah, I was like, I met the woman in my dreams. She like, was your higher like power. Like, she's, she's in one higher power, man. It wasn't nothing like that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I've been hearing that phrase but more and that's more. That's a bullshit phrase, When dude. they say, I made this woman my higher no, power. you just didn't have a higher power, bro. <laughs> like, okay. So... I didn't make her that. It was it was that like I'd never had a fucking connection with somebody like this in this experience. What I didn't know, and what I you know I learned pretty quickly, is she was mirroring me and I was being manipulated. She 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 knew some deep things about me and she was really good at what she did, and she and turned out to be like a malignant narcissist and it was the most deeply. Humili- she was the chick. Yeah, it was the most deeply humiliating experience of my life. Um, within nine months, I'd lost 75 pounds at organ shutting down. I, I, I wasn't even listening to the music I listened to. I was dressing different. I'm wearing all this. I mean, I wear designer stuff, but I was like, I look like a fucking backstreet boy, bro. And it was like, I didn't even have identity anymore. It, it went from this thing of love bombing to devaluing. The love bombing in the beginning was so fucking euphoric that it became like a drug. And I don't know if you know anything about that kind of abuse. Is it literally triggers your brain into like, when you get that love bombing, it's 20 times more powerful than cocaine. Plus, I'm doing meth with a fucking cult leader. Like, they had their own cult at one point. Like, they knew how to run fucking people. And her ex-husband was totally involved in this whole thing. And you got taken in, dude. And she's I got, the one who stole your wolf. Yeah, and no, I gave the wolf to her. This is incredible so listen, that we went full listen, circle I, without I, even I, planning I, on. Yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I can tell you that. Like, I still deeply love this person. Like I do, and it sucks she has what she had, and she had to go through it to get it. And she's, you know, 
she lives her life the best way she can. Like I, I actually made amends with her. You know, my sponsor's like, everybody else was like, are you fucking out of your mind? She, she paid two people to kill you. You know, this is, there's a lot in this story. There's a whole book in this story, dude, right? Give us a little more then, please. So <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to stomp on this thing. So next thing I know, man, I think I can live with her and I'll be okay with, you know, what she does. The thing is, is that like her friends, yeah, clients, they wouldn't get attached with. She would, you know, because, you know, being borderline or narcissistic, you don't have any value or any worth. And you have to get it from other things. That's why she was so good at her job, you know. And don't, I'm not bashing anybody in the sex industry, man, because I have a lot of friends in the sex industry and I totally support them. This is my experience with one person mm -hmm. and she happened to be in it. And um, it was, uh, so she had like all these other dudes, but they were actually paying her. And the line was insane. I don't know. Anyway, she's just cheating on me with everybody. Literally everybody. That's her job, though. No. Everybody that was hanging out, too. Every single dude. Every single dude she was piping behind my back. I'd go to the store. Fucking come over. You know what I mean? And I never really had anybody do that to me. And it was so mind-blowing. And the shit she would do, like, like her, her ex-husband showed up and he had this fucking meathead security guard with him at the house. I mean, dude, we're, like, driving Porsches and all this shit, man. And living in these fucking million-dollar homes. Through the cult? No. No, no. Through other things. Dude, these people know how to make fucking money, bro. Like, psychopaths can make fucking money, you know? I need a lesson. Uh... You don't want the lesson I got. So, uh, anyways, she calls me up, and it would be things like, come over, baby, come over. I'm spending half my time, three days out of the week, living in my car behind Walmart, and then the other four days in a fucking $4 million home. Like, it, it was just this cycle of love bomb, devalue, discard. On fucking repeat, man. And as soon as we fixed everything, and it was like, okay, we can't possibly... Go back to that. We've, we've had this experience. Boom. She'd do it all over again in a more evil, creative way. So this one night, yeah, I go over there. And, and there's her ex-husband and there's this bodyguard. And, all, and you know, her ex-husband has like three girlfriends. You know, this dude's a fucking clown. And um, she like... I'm like, hey, babe, what, you know, and I'm, I'm helping her move something. I said something, and her ex-husband's like, what? And I'm like, oh, nothing. We just need to discuss something between me and her. And he's like, nothing goes to her unless it goes through me. That's what he says to me. And I'm like, what? Ex-husband? Fuck out of here, man. It's my house, too, you know? Anyways, we get into it, and then him and his bodyguard, and she's, like, fucking not doing anything. And they end up locking me out, and I'm like, oh, but she comes out. She's like, What? And I'm like, what in the fuck? I came over here to see you. She's like, dude, you need to chill out. And it was always like my fault. You know what I mean? They would set up these things. And then it was like, she could trigger my PTSD with a fucking look. And then I come back in. Same thing goes down. And, and then they throw me out. And the whole time, they were just trying to get rid of me so that she could fuck the bodyguard. Oh, my God. I mean, humiliating, man. He was like, the ex-husband was like major. He was temp, setting the whole thing up. Major oh, crazy. Totally. Temp. Yeah. Totally. I mean, and, you know, the way I look at her is she seems helpless and naive and this and that. But it's like the story of the fucking snake and the rabbit, bro. 
you think she's the rabbit, but she's the fucking snake, you know? And you so, got into that relationship sober. Yeah, I got into that relationship, and I fell in love with this person, man. The first fucking so couple scary. months was Horrible, like right. nothing I've ever experienced right. in my life. But, you know, you got to remember there was meth on top of that, so everything was fucking intensified. A lot. So I could, and it was the strangest thing ever. I didn't know that she had had those hooks in me. Because the first time I found out she was cheating on me, I'm like, I'm out. I don't put up with no shit like that. I'm a bad motherfucker, man. You know me. Like, like nobody could understand that. I lost a lot of friends because of this thing. You know, not you real friends. And it was like, I remember I grabbed my badge and I go to leave and I bled out. Like, I could not fucking leave. It was like a relationship with my mother or something. It was on such a crazy, I couldn't leave. It's like an abuse victim. And I, I didn't understand why. So all of a sudden, and then each time I would be devalued, I would let more and more happen. More until it was anything, man. Anything. You know, when, when, when I was in, uh, when I was going through the shit at the trauma spot, man, I was like, you know, imagine the worst thing that your chick can do to you. Anything. And, and you could think of it. And I'd be like, yeah, she did that this time. Blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? The most humiliating shit. Anyways, <laughs> somewhere along the line, uh, see, this is where I go when I start using, dude. I end up with fucking greasy people in greasy places doing greasy fucking things with the worst people. I'm with the fucking Mexican mafia, you know. There was this dude that was selling, like, copious amounts of speed. COVID hit two weeks after me and this girl got together. And I relapsed two weeks after, and the fucking world ended. My job went away. So... They closed the borders, and this dude handled all the distributing in the whole fucking Texas, Oklahoma area. He was, like, distributed all the meth. And uh, the borders were closed, so they were sending the ingredients across, and they were sending it on top of gasoline. And he's like, yo, you need work, I need help. Next thing I know, they're over there making fucking uh, 30-minute shake-and-bake methamphetamines in his kitchen, you know, fucking kilos at a time and uh and it's getting moved out you know what i mean i wasn't in that operation for too long but i'm like i'm in way over my fucking head totally but i end up with these fucking mexican mafia dudes that i know and somehow some reason they were working with me like they liked me you know um well, you had a lot of experience you yeah. know what i mean yeah. were, well and this whole time and then and then with the girl I mean, she would do some nasty shit. I could never get her back, and I could never hurt her because I loved her, you know? But when it came but you to leave it, either. it was like she would do the most crazy things. And CPS ended up getting involved, man. You know, she even had me arrested, you know, made up some fucking shit saying that I fucking was hurting her. I, I, that all got thrown out in court, you know what I mean? Um, but that's how every other relationship looked with her, too. The same cops, you know? So, um, she gets, when, when, when somebody like that is mad at you, they can never see any good you ever did and they want you dead. When they, when they miss you and they're not mad at you, you're the love of their life. So she pays this dude fucking $1,500 to kill me, right? Cause she is just like, wants me fucking dead. And then at three o'clock in the morning, that same day calls me and tells me I'm the love of her life. Please come over. And she meant it. What happened with the dude she had paid? Well, you know, I ended up finding this out. And I'm fucking going over to her house. And so is this dude from here to there. He's out. I find it in some text messages. I'm looking for him right now. I'm over here. Blah, blah, blah. 
And then her one of her friends ended up telling me. They were like, dude, this is going too far. This is fucking crazy. You're going to jail for something you didn't do. I, I want to be part of this. And he's like, look, this is what happened. If you need me in court, I'll come to court and tell him that this is bullshit and this and that. Because he had been to prison before. He's like, you don't do that to people. You know? He's like, listen, you got two dudes looking to kill you right now. <laughs> he tells me I find the text messages. So I started hunting the one dude that was looking for me. I'm like, fuck that. I'm going to kill this motherfucker. He fucked my girl. Now he's going to think he's going to come and kill me. You know? Um, but I was tied up with the Mexican mafia. They got wind of it. They were pissed. You know? And they're like, over some fucking girl? And then... Uh, they were pissed at you. Yeah. And and they were fucking pissed. They're like, dude, this because they're all business. You man. can't be fucking around with this you shit. You can't be having this us. kind of fucking drama. Right, right, you know? right, right, right. I think this dude gets wind of it, goes back, gives her the fucking money back, and backs up. Like, I didn't know how connected this dude was. You know what I mean? So they end up giving me a fucking ounce of fentanyl. And I'm not really doing any dope at this point, man. The Mexican mafia. Yeah. This is the first time through all of my addiction I wasn't really doing heroin. You know, um, I started to in the end, though. So I got this fucking ounce of fentanyl, and I'm telling him, yeah, I'll get rid of it, you know, and well, I probably could have, but I, I, no, I, I couldn't have, dude. I'm in no control over my addiction when I'm in it, you know what I mean? And I remember it got to this place, dude, where it was so bad and humiliating. I'm like hysterical. I'm in this parking lot, this abandoned parking lot of this fucking, you know, of some restaurant. That's abandoned, and there's it's the I thirty or um, one thirty eight corridor, you know, or one eighty three corridor. It's all these hotels where all they set up and do shop. All the you know sex workers and my girl. All these hotels. I knew the area well. I'm sitting there and I'm just looking at these fucking hotels, man. And I'm like, I was forty five, and I'm like, how the fuck do I start over from here, man? And I'm looking at myself, and I'm just like, I can't fucking do this, man. Like, I could not see past it. And I'm like, and I cannot get away from this abusive relationship. I don't understand why I can't leave. But I can't. And I think I'm in love with this person. You know? And I'm just like, I can't do this no more, man. So I had the fentanyl. I did like a little fucking like match head piece of it. And I was like, whoa. Like, I was high. So it's like, fuck it. I took my, I took a rig out. I filled up the whole back of a plunger, you know, which is probably enough to kill a fucking hundred junkies, you know. That's what they say. Did it up, fucking did it. Before I could even get it all in, it was just like, and I'm out, right? I come to, and I come to, and it must have been eight or 12 hours later because the sun's up, right? And it's like 10 a.m. But I'm in my car like this, and I'm paralyzed from the neck down. Oh, my God. And I know I'm alive. And I'm like, fuck. You're not in the hospital or jail. I like, I like, I fuck myself up, man. You know? And uh, I can't fucking move. My back feels like it's broken, right? It was so painful. I finally, because my seat's jacked back a little bit, I get my head to the side and then it kind of gets up. And I slowly started to get movement. It took like a half hour, 45 minutes, man. And I'm moving. And then all of a sudden, I just started pissing blood all over me, man. My kidneys were shutting down. And from having my neck like that, you know, my head down like that for so long, it just cut off everything. Right. If I would have stayed that way, I'd probably still be paralyzed, dude. And I couldn't even really talk. But I died. There's no reason I should have fucking woke up. I don't know how I woke up. 
you know, this and I was out to that happen, long. I was out for like 12, eight hours, dude. And I did so much of this fentanyl, you know, like, I mean, people do half a bag and fucking die, you less, know, and yeah, less than that. Yeah. But I remember that thing was broken. And I was like, I need to get out of here. And I called my sister. I said, hey, can I come stay with you? Wow. And she's like, yeah, when? I'm like, right fucking now. Like, because I don't know if I won't be able to leave. So I'm like, okay. I fucking, you know. What happens to the ounce of fentanyl? Oh, I, I had it right there. You know what I mean? I had I had to return that shit. You know what I mean? You're like, um, I can't I can't deal with this. I had to handle a couple of things. Because if I didn't, I'd be in deep shit. Right. Or, or the guy in front of me would have. That's the thing about the Mexican mafia. They can never come up short. So somebody pays. Even if it's not your fault. Even if you get arrested. Break into the impound and get that shit or you're a dead man. Right. You know what I mean? That's how they're so powerful and keep so much of a hold, you know? Um, so... Uh, so I fucking, you know, but I got to see her one last time. Mm. I got to let her know that I'm leaving and see her reaction. Right. And she would do shit like this, bro. She would make sure that I was the last person she saw and how insignificant I was and make me just wait. So I get this hotel room. Actually, she gets it. I ain't got shit. And then I'm there and then she goes and sees all these people. She's supposed to be there and she doesn't show up till like 2 a.m. I'm like, yo, I'm leaving. And she just couldn't get it. But when she walked in that room, man, like I said, something was different in me. Something had broken. She walked in, and I saw her for the first time. She looked like a fucking rodeo clown. Like, bleached hair all fucked up, lipstick, and, you know, spray tan all fucking smeared. And I was like, what the fuck? You, you, saw, her, you saw her with real eyes. Like, finally. Yeah, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. You realize she's a beautiful woman. You know what I mean? But it was like, I was seeing something different at this point. Um, the spell was kind of broken. Yeah. Right? Well, kind of. Enough to get the a fuck out. Bit, right, that you yeah. could leave. Yeah. And then I'm sitting in with her in bed, and I told her, I'm like, you know, I'm leaving. She goes, okay, well, I mean, what does that mean? Like, she couldn't understand. Her way of thinking is so different. And I'm like, I'm not coming back. And she just lost it. Hysterical. You're the fucking love of my life. No. And I'm just like, you tried to have me killed, bitch. Like, you cheated on me with everybody. You fucking humiliated me at sport. You turned an art into it. You, it was sadism, man. Straight up sadism. And I'm like, I'm out. And I mean, kicking and screaming all the way out the door. You're the love of my life. And still doing that. And, um... I'm sure to some degree in her mind, she really believes that. Well, she needed you. She was, she was hooked on you just like you were hooked on it. You know what I mean? Well, it's dude, weird that's the thing about thing. narcissism. But when I'm not there, I don't fucking exist. And if I get in the way of some new food, I'm, they're getting Your me toes. the fuck out the way. Exactly. Yeah, so once I'm of no longer use for that moment, you know, you ain't shit. You, you're just as important as this glass of water right here well, that I'm not thirsty. she was fucking broken, too. She was sick and broken. No, she was. And she probably still is. She'll always be. You, dude, you can't cure personality disorders. You'll always be that way. There is no getting around that. It's sad. That's what I was saying about in the beginning, man, when I was getting my fucking wolf back from her, man. I lost it. Like, because I love this woman, man, and this little fucking girl. 
Like, I, I, that, that's what I see when I see her, is I see this wounded little fucking girl that means the entire world to me. Like, it, it, and that you wanted to take care of. It meant everything to me, but this person was so damaged. I mean, I'm fucking damaged and broken. You know what I mean? But but her on such another level, man, that it's like, you know, what are you going to do? And she feasted on your damage anyway. She did, man. And, 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 and I on her, dude. Like attracts like, man. You know what I mean? I was at a bottom part of my life when I got where... I'm not trying to take anything away. This is my experience of what I went through. Yeah. You know, like I said earlier, I still deeply love this woman, you know, but not in this fucking lifetime. You know, I hear you. Not in this fucking lifetime. It's crazy story. It's fucking crazy story. So how do you get out of uh, the addiction? You go to your sisters. Okay. So, yeah. So, by the way, I really appreciate how deep you're willing to go with this. It's fucking great. I don't, I don't know any other way. Listen, I call it taking it to the edge. Most people don't say, like to take to, it to the am edge. Am I allowed to say that though? Yeah, I absolutely. Really appreciate it. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, These, I mean, it's like the stories. It's like very powerful, and I'm feeling it. So. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, I end up in Phoenix. I'm with my sister. I'm a fucking lunatic. All right, because I'm, you know, dude, I was in psychosis for the next 18 months. I'm still dealing with shit from that whole traumatic event because I lost my identity. I lost my sense of self. I lost everything, man. I'm listening to fucking like Justin Bieber and I'm dressing like a fucking backstreet boy. Like, you know, my whole everything is different. People are looking at me going, what the fuck? I was like this hardcore biker punk dude. You know what I mean? And um, I'm not even listening to the same music I've listened to my whole life, which I like a lot of that music now. You know what I mean? And and I've held on to some of those things, but it was because I liked like them. Like what? Like what? Oh, dude, yo, it was like, you know. Be honest. I'm just wearing head-to-toe what? Gucci. Okay. Head-to-toe Gucci. But like in the most Miami flamboyant fucking way you can imagine, I'm listening to Adele. And shit like that, bro. Like, I, it, it was, it was, it was not me. And the person that helped me out, though, dude, was like, it was my buddy Stiggs from the Amoebics, which was the most ultimate crust squatter band in the world. These dudes were like mythological creatures back in the '90s, man. You know what I mean? We ended up becoming friends throughout the years, and he was the first one that got me onto the tip of that it was a fucking narcissistic relationship. He goes, well, "Listen, mate, I think you're in a narcissistic relationship." I've been in one. It was the most humiliating experience in my life. And he sent me a lot of videos and stuff like that. And that's how I started to understand about it. But so anyways, I get to Phoenix. And I'm just a fucking lunatic, man. But I end up back in, I end up back in, the, the, you know, in the 12 steps and, in, in, you know, in the rooms, you know. And I remember it was on the Navajo reservation, man. And I end up in this room. I look crazy as fuck, you know. And it was the first time I felt safe. In all that time, man, like, I, I I don't even know how to explain it. I broke down crying in there, man. And people are like, the fuck is wrong with this dude? Because you reconnected with what was good. Dude, yeah. And it was like, I'm fucking safe. You know, like, I'm, I'm away. I'm out of it. I'm completely out of it. I wasn't completely out of it emotionally, mentally, anything. But, um, but I was on my way. This was the starting point, you know. And it was like, it took me a while, man. It really did because I had to fish about what I really liked and what I didn't. I had a lot of that shit still on me and in me, you know. I had hooks in me still. I tried to go back three times. 
I had my bags packed, and at the last minute, I'm like, fuck this, no, she'll never change. She'll just do this again, you know? So, um, yeah, that's where it started, but, but, like, I was trying to live off that sobriety I had before, you know? I knew the big Trying book, to man. reconnect yourself to the life that you had. You had 15 I, I, years. I was trying to, but I was trying to jump back into the life I had As before. though you hadn't. And that life is over, right. bro. It's a new start. Yeah, it's over. And, you know, I know the big book well enough, and I know the steps well enough to be a danger to myself and everybody fucking around me, dude. Talk about and that that's for a what sec. It was. Real quick. Like, when you, when you have 15 years mm-hmm. and you go out the way you went out, because yeah. you, you bottomed out in a... A different way you know what i mean like when, it, when it's a relationship like that and it's so it's the same well, as there was a substance. Math and drugs of all right things, no no of course so. of course you, I was you went relapsed. out in every in every way mm-hmm. so like when you come back you know that when we hear people often they'll be like i had 15 years and then i went out so now and they try to do some math in their head to say now i have 16 years you know what i mean like did you find that you needed to restart like completely or did you or like you how know connected were you to the time you know you know people will say like, you never need to relapse, and that's true, you know. But if you're not working a program, you're going to. Right. If you're a real alcoholic, you know, you just will. Um, for me, it, it was just, you, you, you don't get to escape being a fucking newcomer again. You just don't. So I could go into that meeting a week fucking sober and fucking kill it. No, everybody. Sound like a right, fucking right, right, right. spiritual giant yeah, yeah, in there yeah, yeah. and fucking get everybody going, yeah, you know, like. But that's off an old experience, and I kept trying to live off that old experience, and I kept failing. I wasn't growing. And it was, finally, I, I, was, I was talking to my old sober friends in, in Austin, um, my buddy Steven and, and fucking Charlie and these other dudes, and I'm like, and then I'm listening to Mark Houston tapes. I'm listening to Chris Raymond. And, and Mark really talked about, and Steven helped me put this together. What is your current experience look like? Because I'm not interested in your past experience. Mm. You know, what does your current agnosticism look like? Right. Because that shit I did yesterday, it, it's not going to feed me today. And it's also like these fucked up things you hear in meetings like, oh, when I got here, that shit will kill you. And that's the way I act. Oh, yeah, well, when I got here, when I was doing this, you ain't, none of that's relevant to who you are right it's now. It's what is today. Yeah. Where are you at? So I got to a point, finally, I'm back here in New York, you know, and I showed up here with a bag of change, man. <laughs> and within a month, I had a fucking two-bedroom apartment. I had a part in a movie with nothing. I didn't even have ID. You know, I was just like doing these prayers and, and meditating a lot. And it was like New York opened his heart up to me like big time. And um, but I was still having problems. You know, I, I relapsed twice here, you know, and um, I just kept trying to live out that experience. And then the last time is when I was talking to Steve and Mark Houston. And I'm like, I, I kind of consciously pushed. Like, there's good stuff there when I got sober before. I got a lot of knowledge, but as you know, this isn't a program of knowledge. It's a program of experience. And, and I had to really focus on what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. All right, what is my current experience? And that's all I'm going to share about. I can dip into some of that stuff, but I got to be real careful not to be fucking robbing shit from my past, you know, and bringing it somewhere it don't need to be, acting like I'm doing that right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've just, I, I jumped head first, man. Just like went through the inventory, man. I, you know, I fucking, I went out and started making amends. Immediately. You redid the steps. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I did even them before, but it was a real struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, so it was just a real fucking struggle, and I half-assed them. Because I've done all that before, you know. But this time, when I went in with my current sponsor, I fucking, uh, I dove in for nothing but new experience, man. And I knew it was a life or death situation. That if I don't do this, I'm going to die. And then when you have that step one experience, man, you ain't going to have no problem with your fourth step. You know, when people say I'm stuck on my fourth step, I'm like, you're stuck on the first step because you still think you got some stake in this game. Right. You know? Right, right, right. Like, I don't got to do You don't understand power. I have a choice whether I want to do this or not. No, right. So I fucking hit it. I was making amends. A couple weeks later, I flew to Arizona, made all my amends there. I got Texas coming up. Making amends here. I got a lot of amends on my plate right now, man. Current ones. And I'm just on that campaign. And the funny thing is, is I know that I did everything correctly because these amends come up for me every day. And it's like, they must be made or I'm not going to grow. Each one of those amends has a little piece of my soul in it. That you're and I'm not getting it back until I fucking set things right, you know? Um, it's very cinematic the way you describe this, but I appreciate it. You yeah, well, I mean, it's just, uh, that's just my experience with it, man. Um so yeah, that's where I am today, dude. I'm, what are you doing for your spiritual uh, well-being right now? Like, right what do you now? do? Like in general? Oh, dude, I fucking do all kinds. Um, you know, I actively sponsor people. You know, um, that's huge. If you're not doing that, man, you're in trouble. And if, you know, got to give it away. You you got to sponsor. You can't keep dudes. it. That's where the freedom is. Yeah. You know, I'm act I'm actively involved in my own recovery, man. Which is I I I, I stay in ten, eleven, and twelve, man take inventory every day of what I'm doing. I, I wake up, I meditate, I connect with God, I connect with that power. I'm a member of a home group, I have a service commitment, I run a meet. I do all sides of that triangle so I can stay whole. Well, Tommy, I cannot tell you uh, what an honor it's been to have you in here. It's honor's been and on And you got to come back, and I need to hear more. <laughs> okay. There's a lot more to hear about. There is, there's a lot, man. Dude, but you fucking, I appreciate you, man. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, I appreciate you, man. Holy moly, Tommy Two Wolves is, you know, that's definitely in the in the running for the dopiest episode of the year. What was the dopiest episode of the year? Oh my God, ODing on barbiturates at eight, the horrible saga of uh, his mom, the death of his mom, the thing with the girlfriend, the Mexican mafia. Tommy Two Wolves delivered the fucking dopey. So thank you, Tommy. Any comments about Tommy Two Wolves' incredible dopey, please send it in to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, remind me if I owe anybody socks. Remind me if, if you think you sent in a fire voicemail and you're like, what the fuck, Dave? Why aren't you playing my voicemail or reading my email? Remind me. If you have a fire voicemail in your head, fucking send it in. I want to play, I got two weird things that I want to play, uh, which I'm excited to play. And these are in reaction to last week's Hank Azaria episode. And they're from two kind of like friends of the show, former guests, and uh, important people. First one is from a guy called A.C. Slade. Most famously, A.C. Slade was the bass player in Murder Doll. Murder Dolls, and he played with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, and he played 
He's touring with the Misfits right now. And we did a recording. I actually put it on Patreon. Maybe I'm going to release it. Uh, he sent in this voicemail, AC Slade. Okay, so this was back when I was still using, obviously, because this was my moment of clarity, and I owe it all to Milhouse and Bart Simpson. So I was playing in local bands, and we played a Wednesday night, which, as everybody knows, is the most prestigious night of the week. You don't want to play Fridays or Saturdays. No, no. You want to play Wednesdays. Uh, anyway, we played a gig on a, on a Wednesday night, and we got completely shit-faced after the gig, as was our habit, and uh, came to the next day on Thursday and uh, woke up, and I was on my way back home, and we decided that uh, it would be a good idea to treat the hair of the dog with a couple of drinks at a local strip club. So this is about three or four in the afternoon and all of a sudden three or four in the afternoon turns into three or four in the evening and I decided to drive home where I was living at my mom's house. And so I'm going across the Walt Whitman Bridge. My car runs out of gas. I run out of gas in the middle of the bridge, leave my car there, hitchhike to wherever. I really don't remember a lot of this because a lot of this is a blackout, but uh, I end up getting one of the strippers from the strip club to come pick me up. End up spending Thursday night with her, Friday night with her. Saturday, I decide, hey, maybe it's a good idea for me to go get that car that I left in the middle of the Walt Whitman Bridge. So that's kind of basically like the uh, Philadelphia equivalent to leaving a car in the middle of the GWB. So uh, I go back, and guess what? Oh, my God, my car's not there. Lo and behold, they towed it. So I go to a payphone and I call home and I hear my family and they're freaking out because it's this 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 thing of like they're they're happy I'm alive, but they want to fucking kill me because they thought I'd committed suicide because the police, that's what the police told them. They're like, well, usually when we find a car in the middle of the bridge, and the person's not around, usually they jump. So basically my family thought I died. I wasn't dead. I was just hanging out with strippers for a few days. So anyway, I go home that night. Uh, Sunday, I do my Sunday thing of just drinking a six-pack sort of, and The Simpsons come on. And it's the episode where Bart sells his soul to Millhouse. And... Throughout the episode, um, nobody, like after Bart sold his soul, like nobody thought he was cute anymore. Nobody thought he was funny. Nobody thought he was like this charming, mischievous little guy. And basically like his, his friends would just kind of blank him. Like he'd walk past his friends and be like, hey guys, what's going on? And they would just sort of like blank him. And that's basically what happened to me after that experience, you know, like my, my drinking wasn't cute to anybody anymore. My bandmates, they all thought I was dead too. And so they all, you know, basically thought I was dead. And I'm watching this episode of The Simpsons and Bart's like trying to get everybody's attention, but nobody really wanted to pay attention to him anymore. And I wept 
I was in tears. I was like, I, I have no soul anymore. Like I've lost my soul. And, uh, and I pick up the phone and I called a guy I knew that was sober and I went to a meeting the next day. And that is how the Simpsons helped me find my bottom and helped me find my moment of clarity. And that's the honest to God truth. <clears throat> I love that voicemail. And we have a bonus AC Slade episode available on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast and check out the AC bonus episode. Check out all sorts of good stuff. And I'll, I think I'll just put it on the regular feed too. Because why should anyone need to sign up to Patreon, right? Why, why? I can just give it all away. If you're a Dopey Nation person and you love the show, sign up to Patreon. AC Slade, that's a killer voicemail. Thank you for sending it in. I, uh, I got another one from another Dopey guest, John Bucati, all about how much the Hank Azaria episode affected him. He's a real schmaltzy dude, but I want to play it on the show. So here he is, painter extraordinaire John Bucati. There's no way this message will be as good as I want it to be, but I'm going to try. I was blown away by the master class that Hank put on in how to be humble, how to dig into the program, and how to fluctuate in between this thing we call an ism that keeps switching into different modes of food, work, alcohol. He spoke my language. Hank gave hors d'oeuvres so you could taste what it's like to heal from family trauma to acting out to how to deal with younger people when it comes to, you know, white privilege or how he how he put it. I mean, I need to listen to that episode again. Write it down. Google words. Educate myself. And for one, after all the Al-Anon I've been in, after all the CODA I've been in, after all the eating disorder meetings I've been to, I've lived in an AA meeting for... 15 years I am ready to take on the one thing that I've been ignoring which is chaos and how it's ruled my life and how I need it to survive so I surrender to ACOA and the next steps for that I encourage you Dave to do the same thing but spiritually I was so dumbfounded by his experience, strength, and hope, and how he came in with intention, bro. He came in with intention to help others, and it was a magic carpet ride with, you know, like Super Mario, just tools being, you know, eaten up by a game gamer type of thing. It's like just one visual after another that I could hang on to. I wanted to do a, a notes and I might do. That was by far the best dopey. I mean, even though it didn't fit your 
dumb shit brand, which I fucking love, it was absolutely exactly what I needed. And I will probably base my 2024 year on it because I'm going to graduate school, baby, thanks to Mo Sislak. All right, that's John Bucati, the great John Bucati, testifying about uh, Hank Azaria, who will be at DopeyCon. John Bucati won't be at DopeyCon. John Bucati will be painting in Paris, in gay Paris, John Bucati. All right, I think that's the end of the show. There was other shit I wanted to talk about, but if this is as good a place to end as any. Um, hope you guys are well. Send in an email. Send in a voicemail. I hope to see a lot of you at DopeyCon IV. And stay strong, Dopey Nation. And fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. I want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller and it's time to where I stand Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had these suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had 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 and these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had